Chris O'Connor here. Join our fabulous curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now, let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. When people think of the year 1967, what automatically comes to mind are hippies, peace, love, rainbows and puppies, the smell of patchouli and the plethora of tie-dyed shirts, mass quantities of marijuana and LSD. This romantic ideal was never better distilled than in the parking lots of Grateful Dead concerts for about 30 years. However, the tropes the symbols, and the overall ideology of the Summer of Love unfortunately tend to overshadow how much amazing and timelessly awesome and influential music came out during this year. Indeed, one can argue, and we will, that 1967 is one of the single greatest years for music, and not just rock, in the entire 20th century. There were all-time classics by The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, The Who, The Kinks, The Birds, and Bob Dylan. But more tellingly and poignantly, it was a stunningly unbelievable year for debut albums by bands and artists who not just defined their era, but arguably set a high bar and standard for deeply resonant and influential music that would cast a very long shadow for the ensuing decades to come. Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, The Grateful Dead, The Velvet Underground, Leonard Cohen, Sly and the Family Stone, and Aretha Franklin's signpost-shifting debut for Atlantic Records were among the sterling debuts of 67. And if they didn't release their debut albums in 67, records by Cream, Jefferson Airplane, and Buffalo Springfield were breakthroughs that put them in the front line of the rock and roll zeitgeist. There is a lot to cover in this episode, musically, socially, and culturally. What can we say? It was a stacked, loaded year. Welcome to the fourth installment of our ongoing series, The Second Golden Age of Rock. This one is called 1967 Arrivals in Technicolor. And welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report. So, Arturo, uh, we get to talk about 1967 in uh, this episode, and it's kind of interesting that we here we are heading into 24, where in a way the music is the moment, and uh, we're in a, a perilous moment in history, too, where there's a lot of uh, potential and a lot of uh, potential disaster all hitting, uh, hitting at about the same time. Uh, you know, where you've got Taylor Swift, who just came off being Time's Person of the Year, You've got artificial intelligence, you know, generative AI. You've got Trump. You've got all these uh, all these things, and you've got uh, the you know the the dawn and the the rise of digital music, even even more so. 
uh, than usual. So, I mean, th th it's kind of interesting to be talking about 1967, which was definitely a time and when the music was the moment and history was happening in real time. So just kind of connecting the two years, it's kind of neat to be talking about this now. Are you going to San Francisco? <laughs> per per perfect, per perfect response. You know, I kind of yeah. wish I was now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That 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 would be good. You know, you know, San Francisco still has its charms, even though I think Hate Ashbury has become like a, like a, a homeless person hellhole, from what I read. But but hey, we'll always have the summer of love. <laughs> absolutely and we're and, and it's the love of music the it's the music that matters yeah what we're talking about for when, it, when it comes i mean there's a lot to criticize the baby boomer generation for sure you know, how, how they all became right-wing conservatives when they got older you know yeah. their stupidity and their selfishness that led to the reckless casino capitalism and conservatism of the 80s and onward but yep. it's the music that that generation made that still resonates Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and that we'll be getting into that, and uh, this will probably be our mo perhaps our most packed episode ever. I mean, you'd have to go back to when we were talking about the fourth golden age sure. uh, to find us packing as 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 much goodness and and uh, power and explosiveness into one episode yeah. as we'll have here. It's yeah. a veritable powder keg of of sweetness, goodness, and rock and fucking roll, baby. Yeah, and soul. <laughs> yeah, and soul. Uh, and so white, black, green, uh, you know, orange doesn't matter. It was all awesome. And uh, we're going to cover uh, all of it, too. And I'll tell you, you know, they, there was a 67 in another place as well that uh, and actually it, it might as well still be 1967 in this other place. You know where I'm you know where I'm headed here, right? Gee, where is that? That would be in our parallel universe. Where again, 2024 might as well be, still be 1967 and rock and roll still predominates. You know, the, the rip in the space time continuum has not knocked rock off its pedestal. It's still on the billboards, still on the cover of Rolling Stone. Uh, people still uh, care about it in mass. It's not Taylor Swift, it's still Paul McCartney, and everything is coming up roses. And John Lennon. And John Lennon when it comes to rock and roll. So uh, that's just a long, fancy, colorful way of saying that we're, uh, this is the segment of the show where we cover new and newish uh, artists and albums. Uh, each of us uh, covers a work that uh, we find either uh, really great or at least really interesting. And so what are you coming to the table with uh, on this episode for the Parallel Universe, Arturo? Yes. Uh, hailing from New York City, uh, singer-songwriter Joanna Sternberg released their second album, I've Got Me, last year. But I didn't get around to checking it out until toward the end of 2023, which was just a few days ago. I said there because Sternberg identifies as gender neutral and, pref and prefers to be referred to with the use of non-binary pronouns such as they and them. Uh, one, uh, on one side, you have the classicist piano pop and sharp wit of Randy Newman. On the other side, you have the heart-wrenching, emotional forthrightness and world-weariness of Daniel Johnston. Merge them together, and you get a pretty good approximation of Sternberg's sound. The music is so classicist and stripped down in its approach, often nothing more than piano, acoustic guitar, 
occasional drums and occasional bass, that it's refre it's refreshing take on old school folk pop is really one of the most affecting collections of songs anyone has released this year or last year, I should say, <laughs> coming very close to making my top 10 list of 2023. But make no mistake, what drives this record are Sternberg's sweet yet tortured childlike voice and their often harrowing lyrics of unrequited love and psychological pain. Many songwriters throughout history have tried their hand at raw honesty, but Few have the ability to make the listener empathize with and identify themselves in their songs. Sternberg's tales of bad luck in love and overwhelming depression cut to the bone in such an incisive straight way that it seems that they're writing for all of us and tracking the universal pain and angst of all humanity. I know that's hyperbole, but yeah, I mean, they, they really kind of get there. Uh, recommended tracks... Uh, the lyrically biting indie rock jaunt of People Are Toys to You, the searing account of hopeless codependency that is Stockholm Syndrome, and my favorite track on the album, the heartbreaking, desperate portrayal of unrequited love that is She Dreams. If you're as much of a fan of the late Daniel Johnston as I am, and if you ever wondered who would pick up the mantle for his kind of straightforward, emotionally resonant, and haunting classicist pop, look no further than Joanna Sternberg as his successor. Chris? Yeah, uh, this album, I, I need to spend uh, more time with it. I think that the Daniel Johnston and Randy Newman uh, notes, I mean, those those are those are good calls actually for uh what a lot of is going on here uh my my initial issue with the music is that uh or with this album is uh the music itself sounds great uh you know with the guitar and, and the piano and and all that it, it sounds great uh, however they don't <laughs> you don't not, like her, you don't like their voice <laughs> i don't i don't like their voice uh the the voice is 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 it it's distracting in in the sense that it's got that that like you said it's almost like a a child uh an untrained child uh, singing in in their bedroom uh, well if which, you like daniel johnson you should have no yeah well that, that well that's <laughs> but that well that well that's the thing it's like when, when when johnson does it it's it's more engaging than when she does it i i i just i get this initial sense of annoyance i guess that i'll have to work through uh, in order to uh, enjoy it their, more, their, but, their, but, their voice is definitely an acquired taste, but once you get used to it, yeah, uh, it, it's a really, really good record. I look forward to yeah. seeing what they do in the future. Yeah. That's what I got to, that, that's what I need to do. Like you said, I mean, this is an album that, uh, that just naturally presents itself as a grower from yeah. listen one that, you know, in order for, uh, you have to give it more than a couple of chances, uh, right. for it to sink in. And so that's, and 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 that's the thing, like you said, acquired taste. I mean, Johnson's an acquired taste. It took me a while to really get right. into get into his shtick. So, right. if Stur if Sternberg's in that lane, then yeah, the then their promise moving yeah. forward is is considerable. Yeah. Uh, you know, but like I said, just for me, it's just it's uh, it it hits at a note of annoyance. It, it kind of reminds me, of, it, at least in some associations, a little bit like that kind of Kimya Dawson. Where it has that mm. kind of that that kind of preciousness, yeah, yeah. Uh, or almost ironic preciousness. Right. Um, but there's and, no irony with Joanna Sternberg at all. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. 
but what I mean is uh, is just the the kind of the child's voice to to talk about deep things. Yeah, that that's what I mean by the ironic child voice. Right. Right. Uh, and so it just kind of reminds me of that. And I was never a huge fan of Kimya Dawson. So just, you know, my my initial implicit biases <laughs> are, are, are are rearing their heads. But uh, I, I got to give it a shot. And uh, again, I mean, uh, the music, again, sounds great. So, uh, yeah, definitely got to spend some more time with it. Uh, same thing with this next one. I, I think that this is another album that it took me a few listens to to get into. But. I like it now. Uh, this is uh, Dan- Danny Brown, the rapper Danny Brown, and his new record that was released late last year, Quaranta. Uh, now, Danny Brown uh, is uh, one of the the better uh, underground rappers of the last uh, 15 years. He's a Detroit uh, native. And back in 2011, he did this really great record that actually you turned me on to, Arturo, called uh, XXX. Yeah, Triple uh, X is a classic. Yeah. Yeah, it's a classic. And it's just this uh, manic uh horror core uh happy uh ode to drugs and to sex and to violence and and just really it's gritty as hell and goofy as hell but gritty as hell and where brown presents with this nasally cartoonish voice in which he in which he wraps uh everything on it and so i mean it was a real kind of like kind of whacked out psychedelic rap masterpiece uh, and so that was 12, maybe almost 13 years ago. But here he is now. Uh, Brown is in his 40s. Uh, he is uh, recently sober after years of struggling with addiction. And he's acquired some wisdom. Uh, he's acquired regrets. Uh, he's uh, required a perspective of being kind of the old head uh, looking down upon uh, his new uh, set of competition and he sees the world changing around him. And so uh, so he takes that soberness, both literal, figuratively and literally, and channels it uh, into this record uh, where uh, the psychedelia is still in strong effect in, in much of the beat work, but the, uh, that, that horrorcore edge is, is off. And it's more pointive. It's more, uh, it's more solemn than that. And it, it actually gets the album grows more minimal uh, yeah. as, as it goes along. And so, and and mo- most strikingly about this record is that he does he only on a couple of occasions does he use that performance voice that made him so f- uh, famous. He actually he raps. There's a voice that he raps like this. Yes, yeah. So he uh, so he he mostly backs off of that, and he's he, he plays it straight. Yeah. And uh, but he sh- in in playing it straight, he actually shows. That he still has those tremendous chops, just those technical yeah. chops as a rapper, and so he's, he really is, uh, he really is fantastic. So the so the psychedelic splendor is there, but the druggy manicness is not, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, so uh, really, uh, really kind of a an, an interesting listen. A lot going on there. Uh, standout tracks. Uh, there's uh, probably my favorite song on the record, uh, the amusingly titled "Jen's Terrific Vacation." Uh, which is all about the gentrification, uh, i.e., whiteification of his neighborhood in yeah. in Detroit, and uh, sort of talking about the changes uh, there and lamenting those, but also uh, having some righteous anger uh, about mm-hmm. it too, and uh, just sort of just goofing on uh, goofing on this this notion of of well, you know, having organic gardens in places where there used to be crack houses, um, yeah. and just you know. Uh, in a way, and he's not being complimentary about it, which is which is kind of funny. 
Uh, <laughs> he misses the crack houses. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, and so the other other standout tracks to to note, uh, one called Ain't My Concern, which is, mm. uh, I think, my other favorite song on the record. It's built on this warbling drum tra- track and this uh, really spooky chimes loop. And uh, here he uh, he's basically battle rapping his younger competitors. And it has the wonderful uh, couplet in there. Uh, back in the day, they sold their soul for rock and roll. But with this rap shit, an end sell his booty hole. <laughs> yeah. Can't, yeah. Can't, can't, can't say the N-word, but an N-word an end sell his booty hole. So, <laughs> so really enjoyable stuff. And then there's uh, YBP which is a skittering up-tempo yet unsettled number with grim remembrances of growing up young, black, and poor. YBP, mm. get it? Right, right. And then finally, there's Hanami, which is this engaging, soft-spoken confessional about uh, reliving his mistakes while just trying to survive in the here and now. And yeah. so it's kind of a, it's a looking back and looking forward, uh, which he does a lot of both on this record, but he he engages in both looking back and looking forward on Hanami. So uh, good stuff. So he's not back. He's not what he was back in his wild drug out innovative days there in 2011, but he does demonstrate staying power and resilience and shows that even without the drugs, his gifts as a rapper remain substantial. Arturo, what say you? Yeah, I like this album. I think it's pretty good. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a departure for him in a good way. Um, my only, my only complaint is that toward the end of the record, it gets a little too mellow. Yeah. It mellows out a little too much. Uh, it, it stops being so even and it becomes a little, sorry, it, st- it stops being eclectic and starts being a little too homogenous. I love yeah. Hanami. I, I interpret Hanami toward the end of the record as just basically him coming to grips with the fact that he's uh, a hip hop artist who's commercially past his prime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not as popular as he used to be. And yeah. he's kind of gone back deep underground and he has a little bit of, you know, resentment toward that. But yeah, resentment like, and regret. Yeah. Resentment, regret, regret because, you know, he blew it all with drugs and bad relationships yeah. and depression. Well, depression is not his fault. But anyway, yeah. I mean, he um, and that's why, how, how I interpret that song. It's, it's, a, it's a great track. There's some other good ones. I like Ain't My Concern. I think it's a great it's a great song, too. Um, there's mm-hmm. some really good songs in this. I give it a solid three and a half stars. After, after this record, you just want to give a guy a hug. Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. No people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon. Help us expand our little community and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. The name of this installment of the second golden age of rock. This one is 1967 Arrivals in Technicolor. Why did we call it? Why did we call it that? Well, Technicolor because... Hey, man, it's the swing in 60s, LSD, acid, everything's in color. TV got colorful in 1967 as well. As uh, Color television became more widespread. The music got more colorful. And now, Arrivals, why Arrivals? 
dude, there are so many debuts and yep. or arrivals of artists making a huge impact. Like I mentioned in the parameter setter artists and albums that would set the tone, not just for the rest of the sixties, but for the next few decades and for the influence and the long shadow shadows, plural that these albums and artists would cast into the future arrivals, massive arrivals, massive debuts. That's what this yep. album or this episode really is all about. Yeah, absolutely. And and not only that, but but you have arrivals and you have re-arrivals. And yeah. And uh, in the case of this first uh, artist and, and album we're going to talk about, it was the arrival of uh, rock and roll as media art. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it basically uh, rock had, a rock album had never been an event uh, before mm. the Beatles hit with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Right. Uh, in uh, the spring of 1967, so or the summer actually of 1967. So let's let's talk about uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band here uh, for a bit. And you know, I I have taken up the mantle of being our Beatles guy uh, in the mm -hmm. second uh, golden age of of uh, rock episodes. So let me continue. Now, for years, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was the greatest album of all time, until suddenly in 2020, it wasn't at least according to Rolling Stone. The times, they are a-changing, we suppose, but even so, there is no denying that Sgt. Pepper's is one of rock and roll's most monumental achievements. It was really rock's first event album. Sure, the album had become a thing in 1965 and really grew as a mode of expression in 1966, but the Beatles taught the world how to make an album truly stick its landing. Now, the legend has it that the band built the album on a concept of Paul McCartney's. What if the Beatles were just a simple, anonymous British club band playing a garden party on a random Sunday afternoon? How, in that case, would they reinvent themselves? What characters would they play? What whimsy could they whip up if they felt that only a handful of people were watch watching with bemusement? Hence came the wildly colorful, colorful speaking of te technicolor, wildly colorful marching band outfits and the big fluffy mustaches uh, that, uh, you know, really define the art of this record. And from that also came the wonderful album cover in which this reimagined club band gathers for a party and maybe just maybe a funeral for the old Beatles, along with a few guests that you may have heard of, including Karl Marx, Mae West, Adolf Hitler, W.C. Fields, Dylan Thomas, Edgar Allan Poe, Laurel and Hardy, Marilyn Monroe, and three Hindi gurus. And Muhammad Ali. <laughs> and Muhammad Ali. Yeah, and, and as well as those gurus. Got to give it up for George Harrison. Uh, musically, the band's members have admitted over the years that the concept really only applied to the album's first two songs, the rousing titular song and the jovial, slightly funny ode to companionship and drugs with a little help from my friends. But no matter... The burst of creativity that Desurgent Pepper's conceit birth spilled over into the rest of the glorious music, which ranges from the old timey, see when I'm 64 and being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, to the new agey, see George Harrison's Eastern mysticism tinged with and without you, to the grandiose, see both Paul's She's Leaving Home and John Lennon's A Day in the Life. If you're now free to be whomever you want, there's no shortage of directions in which you can head. And that's the beauty of Sgt. Pepper's. It's a kaleidoscopic onion of styles, flavors, 
symphonic touches, studio-born quirks, humorous flourishes, and tragic undertones. And it's all the product of the Beatles' newfound sense of freedom after years of grinding away on the road. Rigid, straightforward fare this ain't. Now, here is author Rob Sheffield talking about Sgt. Pepper's in his book, Dreaming the Beatles. Quote, The arrogance of the album is deeply lovable. The Beatles went into the studio with hardly any tunes, no clever concept, no special ideas, and just the presumption that they were about to make history. Now they could work at their own pace. For the first time, they weren't running to catch a plane or hiding in a hotel room. The first day of the sessions in November of 66, hundreds of devotees were camped outside the studio. The world couldn't wait to hear it, and neither could the Beatles. They had promised themselves a masterpiece even more than they had promised it to the world. Less assured men might have sweated a drop or two under this pressure, but the Beatles relished it. They figured it was a matter of showing up at the studio and waiting for genius to strike. End quote. The band extended this run of unkempt genius further into 1967 with the release of a second album called Magical Mystery Tour in the fall. That album houses what, strange but true, were the first three songs recorded during the Sgt. Pepper sessions. The extraordinary trio of John's Strawberry Fields Forever, Paul's Penny Lane, and George's It's Only a Northern Song. It also contains a few other jaw-droppingly creative classics. Here comes John's I Am the Walrus and All You Need Is Love. There goes Paul's Hello, Goodbye, and Fool on the Hill. Few artists ever had a 12-month run as rich as prolific, or just as plain old marvelous as the Beatles did in 1967. They rewrote the rules of what was possible in not just popular music, but also in popular culture. They brought layers and hues into the mix that no one could have imagined would have worked coming from a rock and roll band. They whipped up imagination after imagination. They became everyone's in competition, as in, here, top that. It's a spirit that lives on today. When Beyonce drops a Lemonade or a Renaissance, or Taylor Swift drops some long-ass indulgent version of an earlier song with an equally indulgent video, we must, we must, we must trace the spectacle back to Sgt. Pepper's. The Beatles turned their music and creativity into full-fledged media art. It makes me wonder what a band this ingenious and this spiritually in tune with one another could come up with in this internet, social media-obsessed world we live in now. Clearly, it'd be something we've never heard before or something that we haven't seen before. That's how special the Beatles of 1967 truly were. Huzzah, huzzah, huzzah. Arturo? Yeah, two things. First, the Magical Mystery Tour was originally conceived as a movie. Yeah. Uh, it was a film. It was some psychedelic nonsense road trip film, you know, inspired by Ken Kesey's Merry Pranksters. Just, you know, just a, 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 a transported to England and people going on a holiday trip with lots of psychedelic colors and surrealist nonsense and whatnot. And what it, what it is, in the UK, the Magical Mystery Tour album was not an album. It's an EP. It's an EP containing the right. songs from that movie. So if you look on Wikipedia, Magical Mystery Tour is not considered really an album in the British sense. It's an EP. Yeah. It has Magical Mystery Tour, Fool, The Fool on the Hill, Flying, Blue Jay Way, the terrible track, Your Mother Should Know, I Am the Walrus, and Hello, Goodbye. And then for the U.S. release, they tacked on 
the singles and B-sides, Strawberry Fields Forever, Penny Lane, Baby You're a Rich Man, All You Need Is Love, to extend it into a full-length album. So in the U.S. it was an album, and in the U.K. it was uh, it was an EP. Second yeah. thing, um, about Sgt. Pepper's, the only thing I'm going to say really is that starting in the early teens, uh, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, among younger generations of music critics, and I would like to say the pretentious indie hipster douchebag wing yeah. of music critics, they've started to pan and and and, and redo and redo Sgt. Pepper's legacy and criticize it. And it's like, oh, it's indulgent. Oh, it's it's fluff. It's psychedelic puff. All that crap. Right. In fact, that that notion has carried on for so much for the past decade that now I think Sgt. Pepper's is underrated. I think it's yeah. an underrated album. I, I think that's a fair yeah. comment. I think that's a fair comment. That's kind of what I meant at the beginning when I said it was the greatest album of all time until it wasn't. Right. Because- I, I think the millennial, especially millennial generation music critics deserve an ass kicking and they, they, and they deserve a talking to what they've done to this record. Um, yeah. It is not the 24th best record of all time. It is easily top 10. And yeah. anyone who says otherwise needs like to get either the wax pulled out of the ears to get their asses kicked yeah for, for, fucking for, wrong. yeah for the record uh this album fell from number one to number 16 oh, on the 20 okay on, well that's better on, than on, i thought <laughs> yeah on, on the 2020 uh list uh yeah. of the 500 greatest albums ever made and in that poll it comes in at, at number uh 16 after having been number one for years and years and years right yeah. all right now talk about uh, talking about a band that did produce what is considered to be a psychedelic fluff album. Yeah. Let's go to the Rolling Stones in 1967. Yep. Now back in the 1960s the American record industry had this annoying habit of taking albums by artists of other countries and mutilating the albums for what yep. they thought uh, was more suitable for an American audience. What I mean by this is that they would omit certain songs, replace them with others, and sometimes even change the track listing. Sometimes the American company wouldn't even release the album that was released in the other country, the UK, and instead put together a packaged album of singles and outtakes that they thought would be more appealing to the American record-buying public. The most notorious example of this is, of course, with the Beatles. In the UK, they were on EMI Records. EMI was a parent company of Capitol Records in the US. Therefore, when the Beatles released an album, as they intended, Capitol would get their hands on it, and they would completely change the contents of it because, you know, Americans and the British are so, so different. Yeah, uh, Rubber, exactly. Rubber Soul from 1965 was the last time the Beatles would be subjected to this. Well, this same practice applied to the Rolling Stones. In early 1965, the Stones released their third official album, The Rolling Stones Now, in the UK and throughout Europe, and contained the huge hit Little Red Rooster. But because that song was not a hit in the States, the album wasn't released at all in America, meaning at the time, at the time you had to special order it as an import to get your hands on it. The album that broke them big time in the U.S., Out of Our Heads, the one that has satisfaction on it, saw the U.S. release contain a very different track listing to the U.K. version, which didn't have satisfaction at all. (laughs) In fact, even the covers of both versions were different. 
The U.S. version was in color and had a close-up of the band members' faces. The U.K. version was in black and white and was eventually used as the cover of the album December's Children, which was released in the U.S., but not released in the U.K. Confusing, huh? <laughs> Mm-hmm. However, uh, unlike the disgraceful mutilation of Beatles records that Capitol performed, the Rolling Stones U.S. label, London Records, actually did a pretty good job of assembling their versions of the albums. I think the U.S. version of 1966's Aftermath is better than the U.K. Yeah. version for the simple reason that and it black. has painted black on it. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. exactly. Which brings us to early 1967, when the Stones were still on top of the world and challenging the Beatles for rock supremacy. They were well into one of their most fascinating periods, where they were halfway between the kick-ass, blues, R&B-infused rock and roll they were known for, and the slightly psychedelic pop they were exploring, particularly thanks to Brian Jones's brilliant gift for multi-instrumentation and arrangements. It's the U.S. version of the album Between the Buttons that I'll discuss here, since it's the much better version, simply for the reason that it has both Let's Spend the Night Together and Ruby Tuesday. How can any album not be improved by having those <laughs> Anyway, yeah. both, both songs were double A-sides to each other, and they were smash hit singles that rank among the greatest in the Stones' illustrious discography, as well as of the entire decade. Let's Spend the Night Together is a barnstorming R&B stomper that is driven by some of the most savage, deceptively tricky drumming Charlie Watts had ever laid down. Somewhere and somehow, and somewhere is in the U.S., (laughs) it only reached (laughs) number 55 in the Billboard pop chart. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. Top 10 in the U.K. and throughout Europe. Ruby Tuesday may be the lushest, most beautiful, pure pop song the band ever did. It teases psychedelia with Brian Jones's use of the alto recorder and Keith Richards, his use of bowing the double bass. But it's Mick Jagger's gorgeous melody, especially in the chorus, that makes the song soar. Other notable tracks on this nearly perfect album are Miss Amanda Jones, a precursor to the swinging, raging riff rock that they would perfect in a few years. She Smiled Sweetly, a love song that manages to be haunting with its creepy sounding organ, and Connection, a jubilant tribute to girl group pop that, not surprisingly, found a huge fan in Brian Wilson, who claimed Mm -hmm. it was one of his favorite Stone songs. In between, between the buttons and the follow-up album, Their Satanic Majesty's Request, there was a lot of drama in the world of the Rolling Stones, most of it coming from a huge drug bust in Keith Richards' house in February of 1967. Richards, Mick Jagger, Marianne Faithful, Jagger's girlfriend at the time, and art dealer Robert Frazier were arrested and charged with drug possession, including hashish, four heroin pills, and amphetamine pills that were actually purchased legally via prescription in Italy. Mick and Keith being in and out of the courtroom for months meant that the recording for what the Stones envisioned as their epic repost to the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's album Mm -hmm. ended up being a messy, disorganized, and lengthy affair. 
factor in the large number of drugs that Jagger, Richards, and Jones were consuming during this time, particularly LSD, as well mm -hmm. as the druggy entourage and guests the band members would bring into the studio, making the recording sessions into a giant party. And the music produced during this period ended up being a hodgepodge of sounds and experiments. Released in December 1967, their Satanic Majesty's request was the furthest the Stones would ever venture into full-blown psychedelia, arguably going even further into mind-trip music than the Beatles did on their epochal Sgt. Peppers. It got mixed reviews from the press, didn't sell that well, and even members of the band would soon dismiss the album as a folly. Didn't help matters that the album cover practically mimicked the Sgt. Pepper's cover. Yeah. But hey, it was the first Stones album to not be altered by their American record label for the American market. So there is that. Yep. However, 57 years later, is the album really that bad? Listen, a few years back when this podcast uh, had a vault segment of classic albums from the past, I featured this album and defended it. It isn't perfect, especially with the dreadful Bill Wyman composition in Another Land, <laughs> where he sings in a tone-deaf voice and is made to sound like he's underwater. <laughs> and it's the second consecutive, <laughs> it's the second consecutive Stones album to end with silly vaudeville pastiche in uh, On With the Show. Nevertheless, Dig deep into the album and you'll find some of the most original sounding, innovative and intriguing psychedelic rock of the period. Jagger and Richards being absent from the studio so much meant that Brian Jones got to indulge in his fascination with eerie sounds, North African rhythms and Indian classical music, picking up where Paint It Black left off. You can hear this to full effect in songs like Sing This, uh, Sing this All Together, See What Happens, and uh, Gomper. Uh, with the instrumental. She's a Rainbow, one of the two singles from the album, comes across like a more upbeat Ruby Tuesday, but with more interesting complexity thrown in with Jones's use of the Mellotron and future Led Zeppelin bassist John Paul Jones's lovely string arrangement. The best track on the album, however, is the other single, the spooky epic 2000 Light Years From Home. The songs ebbs and flows, stop-start peaks, and valleys and haunting atmosphere are the result of a sonic soup of Jones's Mellotron and electric dulcimer and bassist Bill Wyman's subtle use of an oscillator. Add Keith Richards' uh, fuzzy guitar accents, and you have a classic psychedelic wonder that ranks alongside the best psych pop of the period. Brian Jones was already doing a lot of drugs at the time, but the commercial and critical disappointment of their Satanic Majesty's request an album that has so many of Jones's fingerprints on it, had to have hurt his confidence in a band that, while he formed it, was taken over by Jagger and Richards once they emerged as songwriters. It precluded a druggy nosedive into such unreliability and wonkiness that it, it got him fired from the band two years later. Yep. As for the Stones in general, this was their first setback in a career of several setbacks. However... This would be followed by the first of several successful comebacks for this most resilient of bands to be continued in the next installment yes. of the second golden age of rock. Chris? Yes, that, that definitely counts as a teaser. Uh, so you would just wouldn't know that this band was mere months away from releasing Beggar's Banquet. Uh, a year, really. <laughs> yeah, about a year uh, away from releasing Beggar's Banquet by... 
uh, their output in 67, which again, you know, you had a couple of magnificent singles and uh, otherwise a lot of strangeness and a lot of experimentation. They kind of, they were in this, they were in this becoming stage. Uh, right. They had, they had been this, uh, like basically a blues covers band that was learning how to, to, to write pop songs and, and really just trying to finding their voice and finding their swagger. You know, they had found satisfaction and uh, songs like that. And then now here they are, they're trying to figure out what the next chapter is. Okay. So is it, uh, you know, is it the sort of lush pop? Uh, you know, is it, is it stuff like let's spend the night together and that, that kind of rollicking rock and roll. Oh yeah. Everybody else is doing the freaky deaky uh, uh, on, on our ass on acid phase. Why don't we, and so mm -hmm. you, this is really a band that's clutching for its identity. This also was the end of their uh, association with Andrew Lou Goldham. Yeah. And so uh, and so they were, you know, ended the year kind of figuring out, uh, kind of regrouping uh, for the future there. So, again, uh, you know, it's kind of a fascinating thing that like, you know, the Beatles explode into the stratosphere of cultural relevance at the time where they're kind of uh, flapping and, you know, they're kind of flapping in the breeze trying to figure out which way is up and not to say, again, I, I think between the buttons is a strong record. It's not as strong as aftermath. Uh, I think aftermath is probably the best of the Lou Goldham uh, uh, stones records, but, uh, but they're kind of, it's a lot of unevenness and just a lot of, uh, it's just an interesting part of their history because they're, they're on their way towards that grandeur of beggar's banquet and let it bleed and sticky fingers and all of that. And, uh, and like you said, Brian Jones is really struggling at this time too. And so uh, Mick and Keith are, are getting more uh, predominant. And so that was another theme, as you said. So just a lot of, just a lot of movement. This, this was a year of movement for the stones. It wasn't a year of stability, but it certainly was a year of movement. And I think that, that that that's reflected in the musical output here. All right. So now we have a band that their first album came out the year before in 1966, but they really arrived in 67. Chris, who is this group? Absolutely. They they big time arrived. We're talking about Cream and uh, their uh, their album, Disraeli Gears. So most of you listening to us uh, these think these days of Eric Clapton as a giant douchebag of the highest order, a racist anti-vaxxer who seems to revel in being a rabble rouser. But there is a reason he's of interest to us here in the first instance. Clapton, as a member of the Yardbirds and of John Myles Bluesbreakers, helped popularize blues rock in the UK with his incendiary style of playing electric guitar and a musical vocabulary that extended back decades and also deep into the heart of the United States. Uh, he also was a member of another band, The Extraordinary Cream, uh, one of the most adventurous bands of all time. Now, they were a London supergroup assembled ostensibly over a shared love of the blues and a desire for greater artistic freedom, but Clapton, bassist Jack Bruce, and drummer Ginger Baker often played against type veering between psychedelic bash-out rockers and dreamy pop on record as much as they jammed out on the blues on stage. Now, Disraeli Gears, as Arturo mentioned, was Cream's second album following 1966 Fresh Cream, uh, which found the band playing along a straight rock razor's edge. 
Here, though, anything resembling convention is ground into dust, inviting listeners to drop the fuck out and tune the fuck in. The album was recorded over the course of four days in New York City, and the results are a stunner. Uh, Disraeli Gears launches with a neat trick, which uh, that comes in the form of the chugging standard electric blues of Strange Brew, on which Clapton rather than Jack Bruce mans the vocals. Bruce was uh, usually the lead vocalist uh, for Cream. And then the album explodes into flashes of wild light and pastel color, offering one amped-up psychedelic soundscape after another. There's the scorching sunshine of your love, the majestic prog romp tales of brave Ulysses, and the majestically weird Swallabar, uh, which uh, that, that stand among the highlights. Uh, now, the rainbow has a beard in the lyrics to that last one. On uh, song <laughs> after song after song, the juxtaposition of Bruce's soaring near falsetto vocals and Clapton's towering reverb-laden guitar solos shine like through like a diamond. Seriously, you know, it 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 the guitar tones and and the the playing on this album is pretty indescribable. I, I've kind of likened it to the uh, to the equivalent of a kazoo uh, mm. ch- as channeled through an electric guitar. It has yeah, this. Yeah. It just has this kind of wildness to it that uh, is is re- really pretty special. I mean, I I don't think I've heard an album that quite has. Uh, the guitar tones of the sound uh, that Clapton gets on Disraeli Gears. Now, uh, Disraeli Gears was a big hit there in the UK, reaching number five on the album charts. Uh, it also reached number one in several other countries, including, I believe, Sweden and Australia. Now, several of its songs live on in perpetuity in movies, commercials, and other fertile pools for licensing royalties. Uh, more than that, though, the album represents perhaps the finest melding of the sonic architecture of psychedelia and the working man's ethos of the bl- of the blues produced by anyone during the second golden age, age of rock that we're discussing in this series of episodes. Uh, Disraeli Gears is virtuosic on the one hand and completely, utterly wild on the other. Uh, it deserves its props as one of the great arrivals of 1967. Uh, what say you, Arturo? Yeah, if, if if you really dislike Eric Clapton as a person, anyone out there, um, Cream is the band for you to get into. You will find yeah. something to like in Cream. Uh, yes. As for Cre- the Cream, the band themselves, what gets lost in all the talk about Cream is how jazzy they were. They, they really yeah. were kind of a jazz band, especially yeah. the interaction between Jack Bruce uh, on bass and Ginger Baker on drums. Baker oh, yeah. was a jazz drummer before cream and uh jack bruce played in jazz he did r&b we also did jazz bands the uh, clapton brought the blues he was a pure blues guy but uh the engine of cream was jazz and that get, that gets lost a lot uh when people talk about cream oh they're so heavy yeah they were heavy but to me they were like a heavy psychedelic jazz rock band yeah um uh, i i don't and i don't see them as much as, as forebears of heavy metal as the next no. artist I'm going to talk about. Yeah, there's but, a little uh, too much there's a little too much swing in there to really yeah. be I mean, pure to, heavy in, metal. In a, in, in a good way, in a good way, because Cream yeah, were great. A lot of swing. So yeah, yeah, but they, they they swung a lot, right? And so there was a lot, they, they were heavy, there was a lot of jazz behind them. And John Paul Jones made this point. I I I'm just I'm yeah. just finishing up reading a book, a biography of Led Zeppelin by Mick Wall, a really good music journalist oh, yeah. and a PR guy. 
And John Paul Jones says, listen, people always compared Zeppelin to Cream. I never got the comparison. I mean, listen to them carefully. They're a jazz band. Yeah. <laughs> They're really a jazz band. And this is coming from John Paul Jones. Mm -hmm. He knows more about music than you and I will ever know. So yeah, <laughs> you know, I'll take JPJ's uh, word for it. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. The next one. Now, this is a doozy of an arrival. Yeah. Uh, th this, this is the arrival of all arrivals. <laughs> yeah, and this pretty much. Is, the man, the myth, the legend himself, Jimi Hendrix. There's very little I can say about Jimi Hendrix that hasn't been said already. Fair Similar enough. to other dead rock icons like Elvis Presley and Kurt Cobain, he's become more of a myth and a legend than a flesh and blood human, or at least it seems so. Uh, the man single-handedly revolutionized guitar playing in every single way imaginable. He didn't rewrite the book. He ripped up the, ex the, uh, the existing book and threw it out the window, writing his own damn book in the process. <laughs> the sounds that the man made with the electric guitar were never heard before, unless maybe in some clubs in the Chitlin circuit. I don't know. And coupled with his virtuoso playing and nimble fretwork, it's no wonder he literally intimidated other notable guitarists of his time, such as Eric Clapton, Pete Townsend, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page. Reimagining the art of how to play the electric guitar would have been enough to cement his status as one of the most important musical figures of the 20th century. But then one has to factor in how he almost single-handedly changed rock music as a style and yeah. as a genre. Uh, Hendrix's brand of rock was fucking heavy. The otherworldly sounds and breathtaking virtuosity were simply given a platform by this never-before-heard brand that pumped the blues up with steroids to a monstrous, even frightening level, while maintaining a funky rhythmic swing, not, not jazz swing, but bluesy swing, that was no doubt ingrained in him from his many years playing in bands throughout the American South's chitlin circuit of bars and clubs, featuring blues, R&B, and soul music. While Hendrix wasn't a heavy metal artist, it is without question that his punishing, ear-bleeding style of rock, especially the early records, laid down the foundation for what would become heavy metal. Cream is the other band that gets proto-metal acclaim, but I would argue that it was Hendrix's, Hendrix, whose music, especially, like I said before, in his first two albums, that came closer to the future metal sound. Like I said earlier, I find Cream to be more heavy jazz rock. So uh, listen, no Hendrix, no Zeppelin or Black Sabbath or all the other bands that followed in their wake. It's that simple. Another aspect of Hendrix's brilliant artistry and one that gets lost in the Hendrix legend is how great of a songwriter he was. Oh, yeah. He was, he was a musical magpie whose interests went far beyond the usual blues R&B trappings. He was a huge Bob Dylan fan, and Dylan's symbolic language and expressionist imagery were hugely influential on Hendrix's lyrical landscape, which informed the otherworldly beauty and haunting resonance of his best songs, especially ballads such as Angel, The Wind Cries Mary, and Little Wing. For all his technical gifts, Hendrix's music wouldn't be remembered as it is if they weren't so melodically and structurally tight, particularly his first couple of albums, which will be discussed here. 
Jimi Hendrix's arrival on the British music scene in late 1966 can be described as nothing short of an explosion. Uh, discovered by Chaz Chandler, former bassist of the Animals, in New York, when Hendrix was playing dive bars in the Greenwich Village, air, Greenwich Village area, such as the legendary Café Wa, uh, Hendrix took the tight-knit uh, London scene by storm and quickly got a record deal with British indie label Track, which had major label distribution, and got an American deal with Reprise Records, a subsidiary of Warner Brothers, i.e. the label that Frank Sinatra started. <laughs> Released in May 1967, are You Experienced was an immediate critical and commercial success. There was literally no precedent with a sonic innovation Hendrix introduced to the music world. An innovation made even more devastating by how instantly catchy and appealing the man's songs were. And my God, the songs. Yeah. Purple Haze, Foxy Lady, Fire, Manic Depression, The Wind Cries Mary. If you don't know them, you should know them. They're forever yeah. ingrained in rock music vernacular. The album went to number two in the UK, and after his mesmerizing performance in that June's Monterey Pop Festival, it soared to number five in the US. Calling Hendrix an overnight sensation is actually underselling what his impact was. The follow-up album, Axis Bold as Love, came out in December 1967, and while not possessing the same number of famous myth-making songs as Are You Experienced, the album is just as strong as the debut, with just as much innovation, especially in his stylistic endeavors. It hit number three in the U.S. and number five in the U.K. Little Miss Lover is a straight-up funk song, recorded right around the time James Brown sent funk into the pop charts for the first time with Cold Sweat. We'll talk about that later. Uh, Wait Until Tomorrow is smooth R&B, but rocked out with a ferocity that only the Jimi Hendrix Experience band could deliver. Little Wing is a transcendent ballad and one of the highlights of Hendrix's discography. While If Six Was Nine is a countercultural call to arms and declaration of individuality that established Hendrix as a stoner hippie favorite. The definitive acid blues song, Hendrix utilizes slap echo, fuzz box distortion, and reverb to make his guitar sing from one speaker to another. Remember, these were the days of mono recording. Yeah. Most astonishing of all is the song Castles Made of Sand, where it can be argued that Jimi Hendrix invented hip hop before it had a name or before any DJs in the Bronx were doing their thing. I beg you, just listen to the song. Listen to that driving, rumbling drum beat that sounds like something straight out of an early Wu-Tang Clan record and has mm -hmm. no relation to the blues whatsoever. Listen to Hendrix's vocals delivered in a quasi-conversational style that somehow has a cadence and is in rhythm to the drum beat. Jimi Hendrix was honest to God rapping and he didn't even know it. He would die three years later, but he could have died in December 1967, and his legend would have already been set in stone by the overwhelming, timelessly enduring brilliance of the two albums he put out in 1967, albums that altered the course of rock history and revolutionized the genre just as much as anything the Beatles did. And that is not an exaggeration. Jimi Hendrix, yes, I just said it. Hendrix is as important as the Beatles. I yeah. said it again.
I agree. Jimi Hendrix did to the electric guitar and rock music in general what James Joyce did to the written word, what Pablo Picasso did to painting, what Frank Lloyd Wright did to architecture, what Orson Welles did to film, and what George Carlin did to comedy. He was a transcendent comet in the sky, and rock music as an artistic form was never the same again. Chris? Yeah, uh, the the thing about Hendrix that's astonishing to me is just how, uh, like, the speed of his evolution and his development as a songwriter and uh, and guitarist. That Axis Bold as Love is to me, like, are you experienced? Right, classic album, right? And it's got all those songs that everybody knows. Axis Bold as Love is about ten times better. I disagree uh, with my, that. In my I opinion, I, I think they're just as good. They're just as no. Good. In my opinion, Axis Bold as Love. It just they're, they're, the the progression that he made as a as a songwriter and the, the freedom that he found and the new notes he found. You know, so like you said, Castles Made of Sand and some of the, you know Little Wing and some of the other uh, you know some of the other sounds and some of the other uh, stuff that he came up with on that record was just so much more out there and just so much more. I don't want to say advanced, but it was just like. It was it had evolved into something like truly special, uh, yeah. you know, by then. And it was just uh, and, and even then. And then you take the next year when, when he gets Electric Ladyland and mm -hmm. it just and uh, how much better that record is than these other two. And and it's just like the, so it's not just that he had the genius of redefining the guitar. It's just that he had the genius to keep on growing and to finding new contours and as a songwriter, as a vocalist, as a, as a as a harmony guy, as just everything. And, you know, as a soloist, as a rhythm guy, you know, he was yeah. just as good a rhythm player as he was a soloist. Um, right. And just it just it just everything. It just it, it I don't think anybody had as uh, has hardly had as as much of an evolutionary year from beginning yeah. to end. From where yeah. he was at the beginning of the year to where he was at the beginning of the year, quite like Hendrix, uh, it, it's astonishing to me uh, his development. And who knows? Maybe the drugs were just that good. But, <laughs> but or, you know, the, I, or the drugs, they, they unlocked what was already there. Charles, yeah, that's you know, what I Charles, mean. You know Charles Cross, the the writer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He wrote a brilliant Jimi Hendrix uh, a biography that uh, you should check sure. out. Yeah. Oh no, I know. Yeah, Charlie. Uh, Charlie Cross uh, wrote another. He he wrote about Nirvana. He's a very famous writer up up there in Seattle. So uh, yeah, I definitely will uh, will have to check it out. But uh, special talent. Uh, you know, there's not much more uh, to be said. That uh, you know, if if the Martians came down, uh, and and met Hendrix, they would have thought they were still at home. <laughs> well, Hendrix had a fascination with science fiction, and you can hear it in his lyrics. So there yeah, you go. well, well, there you go. So maybe, he, maybe he really was simpatico with the Martians. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, next, another arrival by another freak, uh, freaky singer, artist, songwriter. Go, Chris. Yeah, we've got. Uh, we're talking about the Doors. Uh, talk talking about mythic uh, American artists. Uh, on on a par with the Hendrixes, uh, you you we have to talk about Jim Morrison and the Doors and Manzarek and uh, everything involved uh, and the two and two albums that they came out with in '67, The Doors, the self-titled record, and Strange Days. So, if you are listening to our podcast, chances are you've heard songs from the Doors on classic rock radio for years which makes it really easy to fall into the trap of not taking this band seriously. 
especially since cultural reverence for long-gone, dearly departed singer Jim Morrison invites the illusion of self-parody. But that would be a mistake. Remove the band from its cultural saturation, and what you have is one of Los Angeles rock's great wonders. Artsy, mystical, mythic, cinematic in their sound and their ambition. Formed in 1967 by UCLA classmates Jim Morrison and keyboardist Ray Manzarek, the Doors spent most of two years honing their style and translating Morrison's po poetic flourishes into songs in the clubs in and around L.A., most notably the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, where they uh, had a stint in 1966 as the house band. Uh, by the fall of 1966, they had landed a record deal with Elektra Records. They then set about recording their self-titled debut album. Now, I will admit that the album, which was released on January 4th, 1967, is not particularly a favorite of mine, as I find its pretensions and wise guy touches kind of annoying. Yet, there is no denying its influence on, America, on the American rock and roll that followed in its wake. Manzarek's keyboard and organ stylings gave the songs a uniquely suspenseful and at times hypnotic aura. Guitarist Robbie Krieger proved to be an apt soloist and dramatic performer in his own right, especially on, somewhat unbelievably, the first song he ever wrote, the woozy, jammy, practically never-ending smash Light My Fire. Then there's Morrison, whose deep, sensual baritone vocals practically drip like semen from the speakers. The man truly was a god in leather pants. All of these parts come together magnificently on 12-minute album closer The End, if you've seen the movie Apocalypse Now, you know the song, as it hauntingly accompanies scenes of napalm destruction and drunken self-immolation in the film's opening minutes. The song is breathtaking in its psychedelic and jazz-like ambitions, and as Morrison segues into a lengthy spoken word monologue that conjures up the horrors of imperialism. Now, the band, buoyed by the immediate success of the debut album, furthered those ambitions later in 67, releasing its second record, Strange Days, that September. Influenced by an advanced hearing of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, The Doors experiments with many a bell and whistle uh, and ups its mystery quotient to the max on standout songs like the title track, the bluesy hit Love Me Two Times, and the slinky yet spacey Moonlight Drive. Much like its predecessor, Strange Days ends on a grandiose note with the simmering, organ-driven 11-minute rocker When the Music's Over, on which Morrison croons and yelps with a possessed fervor, and Krieger serves up one of his most frenetic guitar solos. Nope, the doors are not just a 1960s boomer hangover punchline. There was a method to their madness, an intentionality to their jams, and a depth to their poetics. The band, based largely on its unceasingly influential 1967 output, deserves our respect arturo yeah i love the doors and i don't care what anyone else says they were a great freaking band here's what people don't realize about the doors they get caught up in the myth of jim morrison and yeah how, you know how 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 you know how attached they are to the whole baby boomer hippie rock um, um yeah the, the whole imagery of it all here's the thing they were a really weird sounding and innovative original band. Yeah, no one else sounded like them and no one else has sounded like them since. Yeah, they're probably they, the weirdest big band of all time. Yeah, I mean, is that a fair statement? 
Definitely. No, no. They got the blues with keyboardist Raymond Zarek in his background. The jazz with drummer uh, John Densmore. They have flamenco and Spanish guitar with Robbie Krieger. That's his background. And you have Jim Morrison and his love, not just of the blues, but of like symphonic pop of Frank Sinatra. He was a big Frank Sinatra fan, believe it or yeah, not. Yeah, I can tell. And uh, put all, and also, don't throw in the, the, the really, really strong influence of pre-World War II twisted warped german cabaret music yep and you see that on the first album with their uh their, their cover of the kurt vile song uh not kurt vile now but vile w-e-i-l-l -L. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, um, uh, the kurt vile song uh, uh alabama song whiskey bar in parentheses and uh I, I think the first album is perfect i think it's one of the single greatest recordings in the history of rock music but they were such an innovative and influential band and an underrated influence on post-punk a lot of people don't get that joy division i mean every yeah, time ian curtis opened his every time ian curtis opened his mouth he sounded like jim morrison and it wasn't because oh that's his natural voice man no it's not listen to joy division's first ep okay from 1978 all right this was back in 78 where after they had just heard uh they had just heard the sex pistols and they had an ep in 78 he doesn't sound anything like what, like what he became known for with Unknown Pleasures and Closer. The Doors are also a big influence on Echo and the Bunnymen, oh, yeah. particularly that uh, Ocean Rain album, which I think is an undisputed classic of 1980s alt rock. And there, and the list goes on and on. They, they influenced a lot of bands. It's Susie and the Banshees were influenced by them. A lot of post-punk really, really drew from The Doors. And, uh, and and it yeah. should be mentioned and it should be remembered better than, you know, the the cartoon that was the Oliver Stone movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. And and that's what I mean. There's and I, I think largely because of, of things like Oliver Stone and because of the media coverage and kind of, you know, the idea of, of the mystery of, of Morrison's death and all that, that it's not parody and it's not self-parody, it, but it's there's the illusion of self-parody right. uh, that comes from this because of the cultural bias yeah. And which is too bad because the doors, if you take them out of that context, really, really interesting band. And, you yeah. know, they did some really exciting stuff. I mean, I mean, me personally, my, my favorite door song is still peace frog. Uh, yeah, I love that song. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, it's, and, it's their funk song. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I mean. And so they were, they were capable of doing a lot more. And like I said, you know, there's, there's a, there's a certain pretension to the first record that, uh, you know, again, you know, just personally annoys me sometimes, you know, I have to be in in the right mood to enjoy that record. Otherwise, it just kind of I don't know. I I guess it's again it's you know a, a big thing that I've come out with these days is confirmation bias. It just confirms my uh, my distaste for the late '60s in general and how it's portrayed in the media. Mm. And I don't know, so I kind of let that get my get in my way of the enjoyment. Uh, the of reality the of late '60s rock is actually pretty great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. And that's and then that's and that's true. And so so yeah, there is this sort of media, especially with American rock. There's this sort of media saturation versus what was actually happening and what's actually there on the record. And I, I think yeah. that the Doors probably embody that dichotomy or that. I guess it's a dichotomy. They embody that more than probably any other American band. Yeah, definitely. Agree. Yeah. However. As much as I love the Doors, they pale in comparison to the next major arrival yeah. of 1967, rivaled only by Jimi Hendrix, uh, yeah. as far as like the importance in changing rock's trajectory. 
while Hendrix was immediate with the Velvet Underground, it took a while. Yeah, it did. Uh, there's an old saying that's been around for many years regarding the Velvet Underground. Basically, while they sold very few records during their lifetime, everyone who bought their records or saw them live formed their own bands afterward. Yep. This is an exaggeration, of course, but it's an exaggeration to make a point. There is no band in rock history whose utter lack or even extreme lack of commercial success is so disproportionate to their vast, all-encompassing, deeply ingrained influence on not just multiple generations of bands and artists, but on so many subgenres of the great rock umbrella. Punk, post-punk, goth, alternative, indie, shoegazer. All of these styles can trace their roots to all four albums in the Velvet Underground's discography. Even if you don't like the Velvet Underground, chances are many of the bands you like were influenced by them. Yeah. <laughs> or they deeply influenced the bands that deeply influenced some of your favorite bands. It goes like that. All four albums in the VU discography are essential in understanding this intricate and in some cases very direct game of connect the influence dots. But it's their first album, The Velvet Underground and Nico from 1967, where it all makes the most sense and you can hear so much of what came afterward drawing from it like a never-ending well of inspiration. They started as a quartet in 1965. Lou Reed, the main songwriter on vocals and guitar, John Cale on bass, keyboards and viola, Sterling Morrison on guitar, and Maureen Tucker on drums. They were associated with renowned commercial and pop art entrepreneur Andy Warhol and his collective of underground slash avant-garde art scenesters, providing the soundtrack for many of the scenes, parties, and art gatherings. For a little while, Warhol acted as their quasi-manager and through his fame and connections, got them a record deal with Verve Records, a subsidiary of MGM that at the time had one of the music industry's largest jazz catalogs. Their debut album was recorded rather quickly in the spring of 1966 and would have been released that year if the executives at, War at, at Verve sorry, weren't so weary of uh, so much of the album's lyrical content. Songs about heroin addiction and sadomasochistic rituals coupled with the sheer abrasiveness and experimental nature of the music were the reason behind Verve dragging their feet regarding the album's release. For much of 1966, though, the band got a bit of a word of mouth, if not notorious, following for their tour of uh, multimedia exhibition performances that Warhol dubbed the Exploding Plastic Inevitable. The band would play their uncompromising freak music to a background of Warhol's experimental art films being shown via projector, colored strobe lights everywhere, and people reenacting drug-taking and sadomasochistic activities to the side of the stage. They were basically a harder-edged, more art-damaged version of what Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters were doing with their LSD parties in, on the West Coast. When the album was finally released in March 1967, not even Warhol's brand name and stamp of approval could help it sell copies, peaking at number 129 at, in the U.S. Billboard chart and 43 in the U.K. chart. But if anything, 
The VU to this day remain the definitive example of commercial appeal and success, not necessarily being the indicator of quality art. Sure enough. It's really difficult for listeners now in 2024, especially if they've never heard the band, to understand how light years ahead of their time the Velvet Underground were. Much of what the Velvets did on this album wouldn't get to be fully appreciated by a wider audience until 15 to 20 years later, when younger bands, younger generations of bands would use the VU's music and touchstone and template for what they did and get more commercially successful with it. See, U2, R.E.M., The Cure, Echo and the Bunny Men, Sonic Youth, My Bloody Valentine, The Pixies, Mud Honey, Nirvana, Pavement. The list goes on. For many earlier punk and post-punk artists of the 1970s, such as Susie and the Banshees, the members of Joy Division slash New Order, Wire and Talking Heads, would be open about how the anarchic and exploratory spirit of the Velvets inspired them. Both David Bowie and Jonathan Richmond freaking idolized Lou Reed. Mm -hmm. Seriously, the list goes on and on. But if you're a knowledgeable music fan and are familiar with the bands I just mentioned, listen to the album with fresh ears and an open mind, and you'll see what all the music critic hype from the 1980s onward is all about. Right before most people heard Jimi Hendrix blow their minds with his otherworldly cosmic approach to guitar playing, Lou Reed was already experimenting with atonal sounds, dissonance, and feedback on the chugging proto-punk romp of Run Run Run, the brutal ear-bleeding seven-minute sonic fury of European Sun, which practically gave birth to sonic youth, mm -hmm. and the yeah. crunching fuzzbox overload of the stomping, primal, bleak portrayal of heroin addiction, I'm Waiting for the Man. However, the album was about more than just guitar violence upon the ears. John Cale was a classically trained musician and used his experience with avant-garde music to riveting effect with his use of his screeching yet oddly appealing viola phrases on the Red Angel's death song. His viola accents are subtle and concise, but have a fascinating rhythmic counterpoint to the trancey, hypnotic, dark psychedelia of the sadomasochistic sex fantasia of Venus and Furs. Of course... The most memorable moment on the album, on an album of one subgenre birthing highlight after another, is the incomparable heroin. Lou Reed brilliantly conveys the heroin user's experience in sound, with a series of peaks and valleys, slow guitar arpeggios slowly building to multiple crescendos, with Maureen Tucker's relentless drum pounding and Hale's viola providing his droning. Uh, his drone, his, that drone of the, the viola throughout that acts as a soothing balm to the horror and the imagery of Reed's harrowing lyrics. Last year, we did an episode talking about R.E.M. with R.E.M. biographer and music journalist Tony Fletcher. On that episode, I counted down my choices for the greatest American bands of all time, not solo artists, greatest American bands of all time. And I had the Velvet Underground at number one. This album is the first argument for that claim. Wait until our 1968 installment of this second Golden Age of Rock series for me to give my second argument. Chris? Yeah, it, it really is kind of hard to believe that this album is from 1967. 
yeah. uh, you know, given, you know, the influence of, of everything that came after it. But not only that, it, you know, you would think that with the, the, that kind of abrasiveness, it would be, you know, if you were just uninitiated, you think it would be closer to like the mid seventies yeah. or it would be like, you know, it would be like post Bowie as opposed yeah. to pre Bowie, or it would be like, they would be contemporaries with wire or something like that. I mean, it, it, it really is extraordinary just how ahead of it, uh, uh, their time uh, that it was. Uh, I'm a huge fan of I'm Waiting for the Man. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's one of the best songs ever written. Uh, I, I just, in, in, in incredible uh, imagery and incredible, uh, pr incredibly provocative song uh, about buying heroin and <laughs> uh, just uh, really, really good stuff. Uh, just a, a, on a trivial note, and just to kind of show us how things play through the generations. Uh, so Spotify, which, you know, it, it does have its uses as far as capturing what's working in the culture and what, what's what's uh, what's playing among, uh, you know, digital space adherents. Uh, so uh, opening track Sunday morning has one hundred and twenty three million six hundred and forty seven and eight hundred and forty one plays. Uh, what, what's in second place? Femme Fatale with huh. fit with fifty seven million eight hundred and seventy two thousand five hundred and six. Huh. Uh, uh, heroin is at forty seven million. Venus and Furs is at forty three million. I'll be your mirror is at forty two million. Uh, right. So it's just kind of it's just kind of weird how uh, how the Sunday morning seems to be like the the uh, the the people's choice. Uh, here in the digital space, and it's so a, it's, a it's a beautiful song, but it's the oh, softest, oh, it's the, the softest track on the album. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful song and the softest track on the album. And it, you, if you didn't know what was coming, you'd have no indication that the next song is "I'm Waiting for the Man." Yeah, <laughs> or that the next song after that is "Femme Fatale," or that the next song after that is "Venus and Furs," etc., etc., etc. It just kind it kind of it kind of puts you in a lull. Uh, wow. you know, you know, before the boom, 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 bang, 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 you know, clang, clang, yeah. clang comes. And yeah. so, uh, ingeniously, uh, done record, uh, ingenious band, uh, like you said, without them, you probably don't, you, you, you joy divisions, just like, just not even a thought, uh, Dude, just, half of the rock music we listen to wouldn't exist. On this episode, we continued our second Golden Age of Rock series with a dissection of 1967. For the next episode, we're going to embark on a different kind of dissection. B-sides! That's right, ever since vinyl records first infiltrated consumers' music-buying consciousness as physical media, the notion of B-sides has always been a romantic one for hardcore music fans. You have the A-side, the single, which is the song everyone wants to hear, the choice cut from the long-playing album, and the song that was chosen for radio, or nowadays streaming, airplay. For many artists, a B-side is just a throwaway song, an outtake that wasn't deemed good enough for an album and is a giveaway for the fans. For many other artists, though, B-sides are taken more seriously and are considered just as important as the A-side single. Rock music especially has a rich tradition of bands and artists who have loaded B-sides with some of their very finest songs. No matter what the consumption method of music, from vinyl to 8-track to cassette to CD to all digital forms, B-sides to singles remain a standard practice in the music industry. 
the Curmudgeon Rock Report will do a lightning round countdown of their picks for the 50 greatest B-sides the rock genre has ever produced in our next episode, Rock's Greatest B-sides. Okay, so we've uh, we've done uh, the arrival of a string of amazing bands. Well, now what's our next arrival? An entire damn city. Arturo, tell us about San Francisco in 1967. Are you going to San Francisco? <laughs> That's yes. the sec. That's the second time he's done that, folks. Yeah, I know. I got to sing it twice, man. Come on. Uh, is the city of the 60s, right? Yep. Going back as far as the early 20th century, San Francisco was always known as a haven and beckoning place for artsy and bohemian types, traversing all arts of all kinds, painting, music, literature, poetry, etc. In the 1950s, when the beatnik literary movement, spearheaded by Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg sprouted from the East Coast, particularly New York, and entered the mainstream pop cultural vernacular. San Francisco was the West Coast outpost uh, for this movement and home to poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti and his world-renowned City Lights booksellers and publishers. In retrospect, many years later, it only seems natural that what became known as the hippie movement would mutate from this kind of bohemia. But of course, there were differences. Lots of beatnik types indeed smoked pot, but further drug use would rarely go beyond amphetamines. Jazz was often the, the en vogue music for anyone who even remotely identified with whatever could be described as beatnik. Hipney, hippies, on the other hand, had a more free-flowing approach to drugs, especially with the increasing prevalence of the supreme mind-altering drug LSD. And musically, while jazz wasn't necessarily frowned upon, rock and roll and its carnal, primal excitement was the soundtrack to many a hippie gathering or be-in. Indeed, as the 1960s rolled on, rock music would become the soundtrack for a whole generation. Naturally, with the cultural movement blossoming, uh, in this cultural movement blossoming in the mid-1960s, not just in San Francisco, but in other hot spots throughout the U.S., it only made sense that a scene, or better yet, a close-knit musical community would arise, several of whom would transcend their Bay Area roots and not just become huge rock stars, but also some of the defining rock bands of the decade. You have to start with the Grateful Dead. A couple of years ago, we did a two-part series on the Dead discussing their studio discography. Any knowledgeable music fan is at least familiar with their career arc. They started out as the house band for Ken Kesey's wild, interactive, multimedia LSD parties. They ended as a multi-million dollar institution, <laughs> renowned for years of seemingly endless touring of their pioneering brand of improvisational cosmic Americana that encompassed everything from blues to folk to country to jazz to R&B to soul to rock and roll to funk to reggae and everything else in between. However, their self-titled debut album from 1967, Another Arrival, Very saw garage. them 
Yeah, yeah. still in their more or less early garage rock stage. The loose, limber, exploratory improvisations and mind-boggling musicianship that they would be known for wouldn't be fully established until later albums, such as Anthem for the Sun, Anthem of the Sun, sorry, and Aoxo Moxoa. Nevertheless, their debut album still has a lot going for it. You have achingly beautiful apocalyptic folk ballad done as slow burn blues with Walk Me Out in the Morning Dew. You have the jaunty blues rock of Walla Lee Blues that, within its 10-minute mark, gets gliriously wonky with its oh, rampaging yeah. rave-up and astounding Jerry Garcia guitar soloing. You also get an overall sense of what the dead may have sounded like had they remained a relatively concise, sharp, rocking unit. Another one of the major San Francisco bands who made their mark in 1967 and for a brief time were substantially more popular than the Grateful Dead were Jefferson Airplane. They started out as a pretty vanilla folk rock band led by singer Marty Ballin, but they had their fair share of decent songs as exemplified in their 1966 debut album Jefferson Airplane Takes Off. Co-singer Signe Tolley would become pregnant, leave the group, and then the group would bring Grace Slick to take her place. This coincided with the band going further with a more rock and roll sound and embracing the psychedelia that was so much in the air at the time. When they released their follow-up album, Surrealist, Surrealistic Pillow, in early 1967, that was an arrival. It immediately mm -hmm. became an era-defining classic. It produced two Billboard Top 10 hits with the acid rock scorcher, Somebody to Love, and the warped, hypnotic, psychedelic dread of White Rabbit, a song that manages the neat trick of lyrically appropriating Alice in Wonderland and rhythmically being inspired by the Miles Davis album, Sketches of Spain. In addition, the album became a huge part, a symbol even, of the pop cultural zeitgeist that was the Summer of Love in 1967. From here on out, Jefferson Airplane would forever become synonymous with hippie rock and the countercultural movement, and it was a long shadow the band would never get out of until Grace Slick and whoever she surrounded herself with changed the name of the band to Jefferson Starship and later Starship in the 1980s and gave us We Built This City on Rock and Roll. But yep. that's another story. <laughs> yeah, yes, um, it is. <laughs> the other main band in this triad of San Francisco groups was Big Brother and The Holding Company. They were a little heavier than Jefferson Airplane, even looser than The Grateful Dead at the time. But most importantly, they had a powerhouse vocalist in Janis Joplin, who would go on to become one of the foremost singers of her generation and era, and one of the most influential singers of the 20th century. Their self-titled debut album came out in August 1967, but they made their first real impact at the Monterey Pop Festival two months earlier, when Joplin, much more so than her band, stole the show with her scintillating, breathtaking performance. Her husky voice and high range, not just in pitch but in emotion, seemed to encapsulate all the hurt and pain of the blues, gospel and traditional folk music and distill it into one beautiful charismatic dynamo of a performer after monterey it was only a matter of time before joplin would go solo and the first big brother album hadn't even come out yet 
Uh, on a side note, Big Brother would score a huge hit the following year with the searing rock soul hybrid piece of my heart, which went as high as number 12 on the Billboard pop chart. Of course, Joplin soon left the band, and that song became forever associated with her more so than with Big Brother and the, and the holding company as a band. A couple of other notable bands of this period who debuted in 1967, the first being Moby Grape. Unlike the previous three, Moby Grape weren't really an acid rock band. They specialize in tight pop rock song craft with plenty of cheeky wit. All five members of the band were songwriters and all contributed. It's probably the main reason why their self-titled debut album is one that I'm not quite a fan of, hmm. despite how critically adored it was at the time and still is. To me, it just sounds like a band being pulled apart by three different bands and directions. Yeah, I love eclecticism and variety in any music, but the first Grape album just lacks that essential cohesion, cohesion that keeps it all together. Much better and much better written is their 1968 album Wow and their 1969 album Moby Grape 69, where they found their sweet spot with the country rock. Much, much better is Skip Spence's, uh, band member Skip Spence's haunting, sparse, lo-fi recorded Dark Night of the Soul masterpiece, Or, from 1969, an album written while he was institutionalized for an acid-induced mental breakdown. Finally, there's Quicksilver Messenger Service. Their debut album actually came out in 1968, but they were already making waves the year before, touring all across the country on the ballroom circuit and sharing concert bills with many of the bands I already mentioned. They had a fabulous and inventive guitarist in John Cipollina who used solid-state electronics devices to alter the sound of his guitar and vacuum tube amplifiers mm -hmm. to create a unique, distorted sound. Aside from that, they really weren't that great. Just a loose, noodly, Grateful Dead-esque jam band without the songs. But hey, that's just my opinion. Chris? There you go. Uh, so I'll just say a couple of things. Uh, one, I'm not the kind of person that is like, uh, I'm not, I don't have a, a big Midnight in Paris streak in me where I wish that I was, you know, could go back and live in an era. Yeah. And those types of things. But, oh, what it would have been like to be 22 years old in <laughs> 1967 in San Francisco uh, yeah. when, when all of this stuff is happening down there in Haight-Ashbury and, and surrounding areas, and you've got the Grateful Dead as the house band for the parties, and you've got the airplane, and you've got Moby Grape, and you've got Joplin, and you've got uh, and you've got all this, you know, it's it's noodly-doodly, but man, it was a scene, and it was happening. It was much more of, a, a, it was much more about the cult. It was as much about the culture as it was about the music. And I think that that the, the culture informed the music, the music informed the culture, and it was very uh, symb symbiotic in, in in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, from what from what we read and from what we know and from what we hear uh, in yeah. in in this music. And so, oh, how to be a fly in the wall back then, or to be a twenty two year old uh, back then? I I would give my left nut to be able to do yeah. that uh, for oh, sure. Speaking of that, it is possible, maybe not to go back in time, but you can read and uh, mentally put yourself back there. Back in 1994, Joel Selvin, oh, yeah. renowned Bay Area music critic, published a book right here called uh, Summer of Love, 
the inside story of LSD, rock and roll, free love, and high times in the Wild West. And he chronicles that whole, that whole scene from 1965 yep. to 1971 and all the bands in, that I just mentioned, plus like next uh, generation bands like Santana and Creedence Clearwater Revival and so on and so forth. Yeah. Fantastic book. The guy's a really good writer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, definitely. And so, so, yep. So wonderful uh, sense of, you know, like the music meeting the moment. Uh, the other comment I'll make is this, uh, from what I read in the papers last week, uh, Dead and Company, which is the forerunner band to the Grateful Dead that Bob Weir and uh, Phil Lesh and folks have been, uh, you know, dutifully carrying on for uh, for deadheads everywhere for 30 years. Uh, they're in negotiations to be the next band that plays the Sphere in Las Vegas. How which about is, that? Which is that wild uh, uh, multimedia venue that U2 is headlining now. And so... Uh, so from the uh, from from the sort of the hippie halcyon days to straightforward boomer cynicism <laughs> <laughs> goes yeah. the dead. And so and, yeah. and this is why people have a hard time. Uh, you know, th just a thought. And, and th this is kind of what we're, we're saying. So much happened in 67 and it was so original. But I think because of, of cultural connotations and the story and the, the arc of the boomers and the arc of all these youngsters uh, since then, uh, you know, it just it's hard to, you know, just seeing just seeing where they've landed. It, you know, the boomers really did it to themselves. Uh, and you just and I think that seeing what the, seeing the dead do that. Where you know they're gonna go from uh, Ken Casey's acid parties to a Vegas residency. I mean, what the fuck are they? Wayne Newton? All of a sudden, just you know, focus on the music, man. Just focus on the music. Yep, just gotta focus on the music. But the thing is, is it, it people don't focus on the music as much as they should have, they, or they they should because of the behavior and because of the arc of some of these artists and some of these bands. It's kind of a sad commentary on where things are, and and how and how things work. Uh, in modern America or in the 57 years that have transpired since then. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, now another arrival, a belated arrival, we should say. Not, yeah. her, not her first album, her 10th album. <laughs> yeah. This was, this is what you call a, a delayed arrival. We're talking about Aretha Franklin and, uh, and her album, uh, I never loved a man, uh, the way I love you. Uh, Aretha Franklin record. Yeah, beautiful, gorgeous record. Aretha Franklin was the epitome of a non-overnight, overnight sensation. Uh, I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Love You, and arguably an all-time great album, was Franklin's first album for Atlantic Records, and again, was an immediate. it was an immediate sensation in 1967. But Franklin had been toiling for years in relative obscurity before then. She had released, unbelievably, nine albums, and unsuccessfully so on Columbia Records, there were a lot of jazz standard records. Yeah, they, uh, in they that basically bunch. They, they wanted to make her into another Sarah Vaughn or Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah or or Billy Holiday. They wanted to make her into one of those, and 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 she had the voice, she had the goods for it. But then uh, this that's what makes this album something of a miracle, and it's mainly in 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 large part the brainchild of Atlantic Records executive Jerry Wexler. And he had this vision to marry this magnificent gospel and jazz bread voice 
with arguably the finest soul musicians and producers on the planet. And so the album reintroduced Franklin to the world as the embodiment of black female empowerment an R&B powerhouse of the highest order. Such was the power of Franklin and this backing engine, uh, you know, the, the, the muscle shoals guys and all the, you know, all the, yeah. the, uh, the, the, the house musicians for Atlantic that uh, in her hands respect, which is a searingly manly cry of sexual yeah. longing written and performed originally by Otis Redding. That song morphs instantly into the feminist anthem of all anthems. Yeah. And, and it, and yeah. a lot of it has to do with, with her delivery and the attitude and the depth in her voice and, you know, and that great arrangement with the horns and that little guitar yeah. lick and just, you know, just, it, it's, it's one of the more perfect songs and one of the more perfect recordings, yeah. uh, in the rock canon. Uh, absolutely. Too bad so, Otis didn't live long enough to like get, you know, <laughs> enjoy yeah. the royalties of that song. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, yeah, he'd, he'd, he'd have been buying like four cars. He would have been set for life. He could have retired. Yeah, after- yeah. I was going to say he didn't have to do anything but to collect those checks year yeah. after year after year. Yeah. And so now, respect is this album's opening song. Yeah, tough act to follow, right? Right. But Franklin and Mates do it, pumping out one soul masterpiece after another. Uh, the standouts here include the gorgeous ballad "Baby, Baby, Baby," the slow burning "Hit You in the Gut" swinging title track. And the emotionally raw uh, pseudo blues number "Do Right Woman, Do Right Man," uh, especially the title track. I mean, th- those are just like perfect, perfect soul songs. Just, just, just textbook beautiful, uh, beautiful arrangements, and just and Aretha goes in there and swaggers like a star. Now, I never loved a man the way I loved you. Reach number two on the Billboard 200 albums chart. And spawned top two uh, top ten singles, Respect, which hit number one, and I Never Loved the Man the Way I Love You, which reached number nine. The album's legacy has only grown in the 50-plus years since. Uh, here's a, a perfect example of that. The album jumped from number 84 in the t- 2012 edition of Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list to number 13 in 2020. Wow, that's, 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 that's a little too high. Yeah, well, no, I, I think that's about right. I think it's a welcome byproduct of a younger, more diverse voting populace. Now, I mean, I've moaned and groaned about that 2020 list quite a bit in the history of this podcast. So here's an instance where we definitely need to heed this apparent good that the exercise at least produced. I, I do think that that album belongs pretty high up there. It's uh, It's a perfect album. It's, uh, you know, uh, granted, m- many of the albums ahead of it are better than perfect, but it's a perfect album. So then uh, Arankle, Aretha Franklin, uh, she moves on from this record and steadily became Aretha in all capital letters over the next several decades, proving to be soul music's finest female translator of male pen songs for years and years and years and years and years afterward. But her ascension started here. In 1967, standing as one of this year's foremost gifts to the world. All right, so we've been giving you all these arrivals of of these mega star artists who really transcended um, the the decade of the 60s and influenced uh, many artists for many years to come. We're going to juxtapose that with a departure. 
And that's the departure of the man who wrote Aretha Franklin's biggest hit. <laughs> uh, Respect, as you said, Chris, was written by Otis Redding. Otis Redding is generally regarded as Southern soul music's greatest singer. And that's saying something, considering James Brown was from the South, too. <laughs> but uh, it isn't mere hyperbole. Redding was the star of Memphis, Tennessee's Stax Records, basically R&B's rougher, grittier counterpart to Detroit's more slick-sounding Motown records for several reasons. First, there was his voice, his raspy baritone with its patented tremolo vibrato carried with it an open-hearted warmth and intangibly a disarming honesty and authenticity that could melt even the most cynical hearts. When James Brown sang, he shouted at you. When Aretha Franklin sang, she gave you a gospel sermon. When Otis Redding sang, it sounded like a warm embrace from an old friend. Second, there was the fact that he wrote so many of his own songs. Sure, he did his fair share of covers, a lot of them actually, but he wrote so many more than was usual from R&B soul singers at the time. These arms of mine, security, that's what my heart needs, Mr. Pitiful, respect, old man trouble, and of course, the immortal sitting on the dock of the bay. These are all searing, heart-melting, immortal classics of 1960s R&B and soul music, all written by Redding himself. Third, there was his scintillating, electrifying stage presence as a performer. Gospel fervor and blues passion combined to present a human fireball of soul power that riveted audiences and clubs throughout the Southern Chitlin circuit for years, graduating the theaters and reaching its apotheosis at Redding's coming out party for mainstream i.e. white audiences, at the Monterey Pop Festival of 1967. That performance, which you can easily find on YouTube or by just downloading the Monterey Pop Festival film, is what had him poised to break through to the widespread yeah, superstardom no that the likes of James Brown, Aretha Franklin, and Marvin Gaye had achieved before him. Hell, just check out any performance of Otis Redding that you can find on YouTube. The odd thing about Redding is that throughout his lifetime, while his singles were frequent visitors to the top 10 of the R&B charts, he never came close to the top 10 of the Billboard pop chart. From 1965 up to the end of 1967, he only had seven songs that registered in the top 30 or 40. Yeah, you which is amazing. Noticed, yeah. You may have noticed that I said throughout his lifetime. That's because in December 1967, he tragically died at the age of 26 in a plane crash over Milwaukee. Just one month later, in January 6, 1968, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay was posthumously released as a single and skyrocketed to number one on the U.S. pop chart and the top 10 in the U.K. and several countries throughout Europe, thereby becoming his signature song. He finally had his breakthrough worldwide hit, too bad he couldn't live long enough to enjoy it. In his short life, it's pretty staggering how impactful his music and overall artistry was. Here's a list of bands and artists who have either professed being deeply influenced by him or covered his songs or both. Wilson Pickett, Sly and the Family Stone, Etta James, Aretha Franklin, Al Green, Marvin Gaye, Janis Joplin, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, The Doors, The Grateful Dead, Led Zeppelin, 
Leonard Skinnerd. Do you know the song by the Bee Gees to love somebody, Chris? Yeah. You don't know what it's like that to love somebody. Really great song. Robin Gibb once said he wrote that song for Otis Redding and offered it to him to cover. Apparently, Redding uh, talked to the Bee Gees. He loved it, and he told the Gibb brothers that he was going to record it right after his final concert. The one he was flying from when his plane crashed. Hmm. Chris? Wow. Imagine, imagine that. that he, he, he could have uh, made Barry Gibb a whole lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, before, well, n not that he was hurting for money, but a couple years later, I mean, he was already rich. But yeah. uh, anyway, uh, one thing I'll say about Otis Redding, uh, obviously marvelous singer, but I don't think that there were, were there were ever a singer and, and a guitarist who were made for each other quite like Otis Redding and Steve Cropper were. Yeah. Booker T uh, and the MGs, they were like the Stax house band. A pretty they were the game. Stax house band, but there's something about uh, Cropper's playing style and sense of rhythm that really worked well alongside Redding that like Redding could really let it rip with, with those, with those guitar riffs there, you know, kind of, you know, putting that backbone to his songs. Yeah, right. And there, there's, there's something about the chemistry, uh, not just of the band, but there's something about that, that combination of Cropper and Redding that was just right. extraordinary. And, uh, you know, when, it, when I listen to it, I mean, my jaw drops sometimes because it's just like so perfectly arranged and they're just like so just perfectly just bopping in, in in unison with one another, and it's just it, it, it's rock it, it's soul, but it's rock and roll. I mean, right. it has it has that definitive uh, beat and that definitive drive, right. and that with Otis and his growl and yeah. proper with his drive. I mean, they're just made for each other. It's just a right. a marriage of just beautiful energy and synergy. Uh, so. That that's what I'd say about that. And again, you know, it, it is, you know, I think Redding was was poised for, you know, after you said he had Monterey Pop and he had sitting on the dock of the bay, which would have been a hit alive or dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just such a phenomenal song. Uh it's just it's a damn shame. It's kind of like Sam Cooke, you know, yeah. Sam Cooke was murdered right as he was getting his breakout. And yep. and C Cook was actually further along actually than than Redding was because Cook had had his Cop Copacabana record, right. and uh, you know had his uh, Tonight Show appearance and and all those types of things. Uh, Redding was was on the verge of all that, yes, uh, before he died, and that's what makes it just a fucking tragic story, uh, you know, because he he would have been by the end of '68 he would have been an all encompassing superstar. Yeah. Yeah, and who knows yeah. what kind of music he would have gone into? Like, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, he definitely would have done funk. He was, he would have. Yeah, I was gonna say he would, you know, like he he would have like approached Curtis Mayfield. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I imagine Otis Redding doing like a Curtis Mayfield style kind of yeah. kind of record, like he does his own version of Superfly, like yeah. like Otis Redding doing the soundtrack to a black exploitation film. <laughs> and how, yeah. how how wild would that have been? I know, you know, but we'll never know. So. Speaking from one soul legend to another. Now, how is this an arrival? Well, it's the arrival of an entire genre onto the mainstream pop chart. What is that, Chris? Yeah, it's 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 the arrival of one of the great musical innovations of all time. Uh, notably, it is known as The One. Uh, we are talking about James Brown and his legendary funk beat uh, construct in the form of a huge hit in 1967 called Cold Sweat. 
So let's talk about James Brown, the one and cold sweat. Excuse me while I do the boogaloo. By all <laughs> means, James, do your thing. In 1967, Cold Sweat became perhaps the most unlikely top hit, 10 hit ever. Why? Because the song is arguably not even a song in the classic sense. It's more akin to a rhythm workout, a blast of joy and raw sexuality that pulses around a remarkable innovation that James Brown called The One. Now, The One referred to a measure of music that placed the emphasis on the first and third beats rather than the traditionally placed second and fourth beats. The shift had the effect of a band becoming a full-on rhythm machine, landing from high on up in unison, thumping deep down into the grooves and contours of that first beat. This was officially funk. And while Brown had played with the idea of the one on his earlier hits, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, and I Got You, I Feel Good, he brings, it, he brings its glory in full force here. Full, 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 full force. For sure. Now, Cold Sweat was a fit of minimalist genius. Brown and his band recorded it live in a single studio take in May 1967. Its arrangement is built on tapping drums, a subtle guitar lick and bass riff coupling, and a nasty horn motif, effectively building a, a metronome in stereo. Uh, now, meanwhile, Brown proceeds to shout, grunt, yelp, and scream in an unhinged sort of melody, he places squarely in the middle of the song's mix. This is James Brown's id gone amuck, and it slaps and marches on for seven and a half minutes. What was Cold Sweat's lasting imprint, uh, in uh, my opinion? In a word, swagger. No one had had this much burning hot intensity before, and very few artists have reached its heights since. It's probably not a coincidence the song was one of the most heavily sampled during the hip hop uh, uh the hip hop uh, industry or hip hop's initial recorded golden age in the late 1980s. The breaks here are monumental. Instant inspiration for any aspiring DJ or MC of that day. Cold Sweat was Brown's finest accomplishment perhaps in a career full of them. It certainly was his most audacious. Its reverberations remain singularly propulsive today. Arturo, agree? Yeah, I mean, this, like I said, this is it's the first true real funk song to hit the pop charts. Um, yep. Before that, James Brown teased it two years earlier with I Got You, I Feel Good, and Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. But uh, here is where it really came through. And this kind of open, you know, 1967, the, so many arrivals, the arrival of funk. After this, boom, floodgates open. Here comes Sly and the Family Stone uh, just right around the corner. Um, Curtis Mayfield starts changing his musical direction. Some of the Motown, Motown artists start changing their musical direction. It just goes from there. Yeah, no, it does. And it, it, again, it, it is one of those like singular moments. It's it, it really is. It's a line of demarcation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it really for, is. Yeah, ab absolutely. And uh, which is funny because it it drops in a year that otherwise was dripping with traditional R&B and soul hits. Yeah. Which yeah. I want to talk about a little bit here next. Yes. Uh, so 
We have more Motown and a little bit more stacks uh, heading into 1967. In uh, the last couple of episodes uh, of uh, uh, this series of the second golden age of rock, we've talked about Motown and some of the great singles and uh, how influential uh, and how amazing uh, that run and sweep uh, was. Well, it continued into 1967, although this was kind of uh, the beginning of their, the end of this phase. Uh, by 1970-71, you had kind of an art, an artist's revolution there where uh, the Marvin Gaye's and the Stevie Wonders and, and those folks wanted more control, and they got it. But here, uh, the machine is still in full effect, and it's still pumping out some pretty great hits. So yeah. let's do a little bit of a roll call. Uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Uh, mm. Probably the best of the duets between these two. Yeah, uh, I agree. You know, really just sort of... Uh, uh, it's it's you know the beginning of it is so spare with that little bass line and yeah. with, with with gay and terrell's voices uh you know kind of building up into that crescendo of the chorus and just just marvelously uh uh anthemic and and glorious uh chorus that i mean most of you should know instantly it's just one of those things that like sears in your brain and it's it's kind of like it, it brands itself into your brain the instant that you hear it it's pretty amazing as we know that you know Terrell died a few years later of of cancer and uh that haunted gay for years and really informed his the, the turn in his artistic direction towards more sort of serious more self-directed uh music right. at the end of the 60s but uh, but this was sort of the high point of that of of that duet uh, of that duo's uh, uh professional relationship uh next I was made to love her by Stevie Wonder of that song yeah, early Stevie is still glorious Stevie. If this was the best we ever got from Stevie Wonder, well, then that's still pretty fucking good. <laughs> uh, the guitar lick, the harmonica notes, the chimes tucked subtly into the grooves, that fat-ass bass lick on the bridge, the passionate, exuberant teenage singing, the conviction in the voice and the directness of the lyrics. This is about as glorious as it ever got from anyone. <laughs> anyone except for Stevie Wonder, that is who went on to exceed this high bar at least a dozen times in the 1970s. Arturo, any uh, thoughts about any of uh, uh, those two songs that I just mentioned? Yeah, Steve, well, Stevie Wonder especially. Like, he was like a... He didn't become a true albums artist until the 1970s at right. this time. Motown was just packaging him as a singles person. He had albums, of course, but his right. albums were just platforms for the singles. It was singles plus padding and filler. But God, were those singles good. It was I Was Made to Love Her. Um, the previous year had Uptight, Everything's All Right, which was uh, ripped off by Noel Gallagher in Oasis. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, one of the Oasis B-sides. Um, but yeah, Wonder Wonder was the man uh, as a, well, the kid, I guess, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> throughout yep. the 1960s as a singles artist. Um, yep. Yeah, there's some other great uh, songs from 1967 too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, so the Supremes uh, scored both of Motown's number one songs from that year, and they're mm, yes. a little bit. They've obscured a little bit over the years, and this is kind of like this is like B-list Supremes. But yeah. both of these songs are worth talking about. Uh, one <clears throat> is Love is Here and Now You're Gone, which mm -hmm. is kind of a high, you know, very orthodox yet ambitious girl group drama yeah. uh, from uh, Diana Ross. There's harpsichord riffing and spoken interludes and a mm -hmm. soaring pretty vocal performance by Diana Ross. 
uh, one thing that you'll notice on this is that it starts to become kind of of its era that that 1967 uh, things gone psychedelic and things gone kind of uh, loungy uh, in, <laughs> yeah. in a lot of ways. And so yeah. so th this song and the next one I'll talk about kind of embody that where you start to get some of this more sort of uh, exotic instrumentation and uh, uh, almost like almost like kind of a silly girliness that you and kind of wink wink cheekiness that you didn't really sure. get on like you know keep me hanging on and and stuff like that uh and so you get that here and then you get uh, the next song which i love called the happening which mm. is uh this might as well be diana ross plunging into the summer of love it's a <laughs> it's yeah. a hippie vibe man yeah. i mean there's horns and flutes and percussion that bop along merrily as diana and her supremes sing this silly weird little ditty which evokes herb alpert as much as it mm. does Smokey Robinson. It's minor Supremes for sure, but hey, it's still a jolly rhythmic affair. Uh, any thoughts about either of those songs, Art? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, the Supremes, they never had any really great albums, but they were like a the, the definitive singles machine. You're forgetting one great single they put out, Reflections. Oh, yeah. Which was uh, their, their, their attempt or... Uh, Motown's attempt at trying to get psychedelic, especially with the intro to that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's song. pretty clear that between these songs and that song, and there's like several others. Uh, there's a box set that's available on uh, on Spotify and the other streaming sites where there's a, they they have their complete singles uh, yeah. uh, for each year of the '60s. Mm -hmm. I think there's like eight volumes, '61 to '68, uh, and so there's a '67 volume. And if you listen to all of these, that the Supremes were kind of their uh, their band for experimenting with the psychedelic. Yeah, that that later it became the temp, uh, it became, it the, became temp the temps. Yeah, the te the the temps by the end of the decades for sure. But but in '67 they're doing more of this. They're they're kind they're kind of uh, test driving uh, the Supremes to to kind of experiment with uh, more sort of uh, the Temptations took it further. So yeah, they they really really were kind of the 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 the, uh, the test drivers of uh, right. Motown of that psychedelic. Uh, sound and that psychedelic ambition to see what might happen if they put Diana Ross uh, yeah. in, in in the thick of 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 California uh, weirdness, and right. so that's really what what this results in. So uh, other a few other singles to mention, well, two other Motown singles to mention, and then I'll mention two uh, stacks uh, singles of of note. Uh, I heard it through the grapevine by Gladys Knight and the Pips. Yes. Yeah, which, you know, Marvin Gaye, a year or two later, uh, did a much, much better, much more soulful sure. or uh, much more uh, emotionally uh, raw version of this song. But I heard it through the grapevine, uh, effectively as the introduction to the world of Gladys Knight and the Pips, which yeah. is like like one of the great uh, vocal gimmicks of all time, you know, mm. with the... Uh, with with the the two brothers and the cousin out there dancing and doing the yip 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 oh boy yip 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 oh boy you know that's what they're called the pips yep they are yeah the pip 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 yeah and it just uh and it just has this like really great little groove to it and just really uh just joyful vocals and just so sort of it's it's kind of like the equivalent of going to church in uh in pop music form it's it's it, <laughs> yeah. it's it's pretty remarkable and it's it's a it's a rousing song it's one of the great uh one of the better barrett strong whitfield uh songs uh that they wrote and it it really was a star vehicle for gladys knight because man that girl had pipes uh oh, yeah 
she had pips and she had pipes <laughs> and uh just just glorious glorious stuff and uh you know can't can't get enough of it uh, again marvin Gaye did it better but gladys knight and the pips did it pretty damn good right you know for sure and then the other song to mention is i second that emotion by Smokey robinson and the miracles oh yeah which is an amazing song yeah and it just it just has this uh this structure to it and it just builds up to this great uh this great chorus melody and mm. you know that 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 drop note of where it, it, it lands on i second that emotion uh, you know mm. smoky robinson's one of the greatest songwriters of all time mm. uh you know strange bob but dylan true. said bob dylan said so himself <laughs> yeah absolutely the guy wrote my guy and my girl on the same day uh i mean that's how amazing he was uh but but this is just one of those songs that was like very indicative of of the miracles where they had this where they had this smoothness everything everything was really smooth and everything was really just sultry and smooth and just it flowed perfectly and there's an architecture to their songs uh that was incredible and and you really get that here and there's a showmanship to it as well i mean it's it's one of Smokey's better lead vocals on this so uh, pretty astonishing. Uh, anything to say about uh, either I heard it through the grapevine or I second that emotion art? Yeah, I mean, Smokey Robinson was is probably the, the finest lyricist yeah. that uh, Motown ever had. Oh, yeah, by far. I mean, Marvin Gaye became a really good lyricist, but um, I second that emotion. There's another great song that Smokey came out with in 67 called uh, The Love I Saw in You Was Just a Mirage. That's a mm -hmm. beautiful track. Uh, check that one out out there if you can. That's a really good one. And uh, you have you have some some more important stacks for us, right, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's two stack songs that I want to mention. Uh, at this point, uh, stacks was still going strong, but they were the relationship with Atlantic was starting to crumble. So the 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 the, uh, the year it wasn't as strong a year for them as it was in '66, which we covered on uh, the last episode in this series. But there's two songs to mention. Uh, one is Soul Man by Sam and Dave. Yes. Which is just a really rousing, just really fun ass song that just, 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 just gallops. And Sam and right. Dave, you know, they, they, they had, you know, they were, they weren't necessarily a harmony act, yeah. they, but they just had like these two distinct voices that just sort of riffed off each other. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, like they, they, they both had a lot of grit and a lot of growl uh, to their voices, but they were both distinct. And so, the way they were able to weave that and the energy. And so you mix that plus the energy of this song with the horns right. and all of that. And uh, anybody that is our age or in their fifties will remember that uh, uh, soul man uh, gives rise to one of the great dances ever, which is uh, <laughs> J John Belushi's romp as, as Elwood blues. Yeah. Uh, to, yeah. to this song. It just, uh, just really, really marvelous, marvelous stuff. And then the other song to mention, and we talked about it a little bit in 66, because it's really a song from 66, but it became a hit in 67, is Try a Little Tenderness right. by, Ot by Otis Redding. Uh, really great little ballad. Uh, you know, like Otis Redding, was, he was a master at that. Uh, I I'm a man, you know, uh, giving up my romantic side and giving myself up to you uh, type of ballad. You know, it's yeah. like... Kind, kind, kind of the shameless crooner, uh, right. like or the, the shame, the, the shamelessly subtly sexual crooner. <laughs> uh, and he was really good at that and try a little tenderness, you know, women, they do get weary. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, Otis really kind of knocked that out of the park, uh, uh, with that one. 
Uh, any th any thoughts about those two songs or about anything else that, that Stax came up oh, with? Oh, yes. I have one more song that must be noted. It is neither Stax nor Motown. Go ahead. You know what it is. This is a song that went to number three on the Billboard R&B chart, number 20 on the pop chart, released on an indie label called Revelo Records, Revelot, but I'm, I'm assuming it's the French pronunciation. The name of the song is... I want to testify by the parliaments. Oh yeah. Featuring Mr. George Clinton. Exactly. Back when he was wearing a suit and tie and his band members were all wearing suit and ties. And yeah, I want to testify came out in 1967. Uh, Funkadelic would rework it to God knows how much of an end. Uh, and it would really, really work it hard as a, as a funk rock, psychedelic funk rock track. But yes, it was originally a soul R&B hit in 1967. Before they were Parliament, they were just the Parliaments. Yep, and they were from Detroit. And uh, yep. there's there's a spot that Motown missed. Although, could, yeah. you, could you imagine Funkadelic on Motown? Well, I, I think the rest of the Motown, it, it would have spread like a virus. The rest of yeah. the Motown artists would have gotten freaky deaky. Yeah, but then, then again, the Temptations took it pretty far out there too. Yeah, uh, they did. Not not that far out. Not not funkadelic. <laughs> no, no, the, no. They didn't do Maggot Brain. Uh, they didn't get that far. But yeah. man, so but yeah, like I said, so that that's one Detroit spot they missed. Yeah, so, for sure. There you go. So that's our that's our rundown of the great R and B uh, uh, soul singles. But here at the end of this episode, we have one more list of of greatness to go. We're going to make a run through other all-time great albums from 1967 from the Summer of Love. Uh, and so, Arturo, take it away and and take us through this run of amazing albums. Yeah, there's a, a few that of several that deserve mention. First, Love, the band Love, Forever Changes. I love this album. The Los Angeles, yeah, I don't. <laughs> uh, I, I do like it, but I don't love it. Uh, the Los Angeles band that started out as a rip-roaring garage rock outfit and gave us the timeless classic Seven and Seven Is in 1966 changed gears for a radical departure on this album. Stately folk rock with Spanish guitar textures and uh, Mexican mariachi horn arrangements dominated this album that was a critical darling but failed to make uh, a commercial dent, really. Uh, the downer lyrics with a dystopian, slightly apocalyptic bent predicting the dark downfall of the hippie dream may have had something to do with it. Hmm. Its critical standing hasn't diminished much through the years, although I think this album is pretty overrated chris uh i love it uh I, I i do think that the juxtaposition between the the sort of the 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 latin flavors and and the horns uh combined with the uh with the apocalyptic lyrics and the sort of the the the, the gloom and doom yeah. of it and so it's it's the loveliest uh uh it's the loveliest album about destruction ever made <laughs> uh, you know i really yeah. think and so i've i've just i've always been a huge fan of you know arthur lee's voice and just just a lot of a lot of pretty, pretty, pretty stuff on there, but also but pretty and bleak simultaneously. Right. Uh, I, I adore it. Yeah. Well, much better, I think, is the next album, The Birds, Younger Than Yesterday. In my opinion, um, it is the fourth album 
by the birds. It's the it, well, it is the fourth album by the birds, in my opinion, better than Forever Changes. And it's the last full album to feature the recently deceased David Crosby. Sad to say, it's Crosby's songs, mainly the cringy hippie philosophizing of Mind Gardens and the twee silliness of Renaissance Fair that drag the album down from five-star perfection to an excellent four-and-a-half stars. This record finds the band with one foot placed in perfecting the folk rock and psychedelic freakouts of, the previous, of their previous work. CTA 102, a heavenly cover of Bob Dylan's My Back Pages, Why, and with one foot placed in future excursions into, into country rock, Time Between, Thoughts and Words, The Girl with No Name, while finding time to write an exquisite, bouncy pop masterpiece of rock star subversion, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star. Chris? Yeah, uh, I, I this album for me it just resonates because of the uh, the cover of My Back Pages, which right. I think I think is their best Birds cover, or excuse me, their Dylan best cover. their best Dylan cover. Excuse yeah. me, boo, hey, it's late. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, their best uh, their best Dylan cover, and so that alone uh, hel helps this album uh, tower. I've also always been a fan of So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star as well. So you know, I said the Birds they just had a lot to say, and they just had lovely and exciting ways to say it. And uh, and I think that that continues on this record. Next, Buffalo Springfield with Buffalo Springfield again. Our third straight album <laughs> by a Los Angeles band comes as the band is riding high off the top 10 success of the single For What It's Worth. You all know that song. Hey, the, the, watch that sound. Everybody look, what's going on. You, know, you know that song. Yeah. But it's soon to, the band is soon to disintegrate due to the competing egos of the band's leaders, Stephen Stills and Neil Young, and other members' drug trouble with the law. Uh, it's too bad because this probably is the Springfield's finest album. As usual, with everything he does and everywhere he goes, yeah. Young steals the show. Yes, he uh, does. With the stomping Rolling Stones sound alike, Mr. Soul, the aching, sweeping orchestral pop of Expecting to Fly, and the epic proto-progressive rock of Broken Arrow. Uh, Stills delivers as well with the blissful blues rock of Bluebird and the hippie pop rock of Rock and Roll Woman, which predates the vocal harmonies he would perfect later with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Chris? Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of amazing to figure that uh, that uh, Young's contributions include both Mr. Soul and Broken Arrow on the same album. Yeah. And, and like the, the songs couldn't be more different. Like, yeah. you know, Mr. Soul is just this like, riff rock, cock rock, like uh, swagger song. And yeah. then Bro Broken Arrow, it, which is really just a, a beautiful song. But it but it also gets these kind of uh, like sound effect blow bells and whistles. You know, the uh, the the uh, the rolling uh, marching drums, the uh, the the take me out to the ball game organ. You know, it's just it's like the, the crowd. And then the, uh, the the clarinet outro, and it's just a very strange. Uh, it's it's a gorgeous song with some strange accoutrements, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. And and which is what you know we when we did our most recent episode on the Neil Young archives, uh, one of the things that impressed me about uh, the you know the, these uh, uh, live coffee house record from 19, uh, 1968, 
uh, that impressed me or 1969 that impressed me the most is that he does just a straightforward acoustic uh, version of Broken Arrow. And it yeah. is just gorgeous. And you just you we stripped away of all the pretense. It, it's one of his best songs uh, by far. Sure. Next up, Donovan with Mellow Yellow. Donovan started out as a second-rate Scottish ripoff of Bob Dylan, but he very quickly evolved and developed his own sound, merging nursery rhyme melodies with sweet, LSD-blessed romantic lyrics. He augmented his lyrical vision with an eclectic musical backdrop featuring jazz, full-on psychedelic rock, Baroque pop, and orchestral folk that actually predated Nick Drake. The hit single, Mellow Yellow, is essential 60s pop, as are the gorgeous Rider in the Sun and the Groovalicious Museum. Chris? Yeah, I have a hard time taking uh, Donovan seriously, but he <laughs> did But he did write some marvelous, uh, some marvelous singles. Uh, you know, like like Mellow, Mellow Yellow is one of those. Uh, it, it, it's 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 got it, he's definitely he he's the epitome. If you look in the dictionary under hippy dippy. Yeah, uh, you'll you'll That's find this photo. It's probably yeah. him holding a flower, giving like a stoned out blissful smile. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he, he, he just kind of the uh, he he is the stereotype <laughs> of, of, of the hippy dippy folk singer. Uh, <laughs> God bless him for it. <laughs> and God bless him for it because he was good at it. You know, like, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's there's nothing that comes close to Sunshine Superman on this record, but right. uh, but it's still pretty strong. And especially, Superman especially and Green Lantern ain't got nothing on him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so that's uh, uh, so that. But Mellow Yellow is probably the best song on it. And I love Donovan. He, he, he just makes me laugh. <laughs> makes me smile. Next, The Who with The Who Sell Out. Now, how did The Who, the ultimate proto-punk band and inventors of power pop, take to the challenge of psychedelia? Easy. By doubling down on power pop, yep. <laughs> refining it to a knife's edge and framing it within the context of a quasi-concept album that spoofs the British offshore pirate radio stations of the day while interspersing fake advertising jingles throughout. After they cleverly and perversely start the album with the totally bonkers Pink Floyd on steroids psychedelia of Armenia City in the Sky, itself obviously a parody of acid rock, and a good one too. The album takes off and indulges in its own deliriousness. The band puzzlingly give up on the pirate radio concept about halfway through, but it doesn't matter when there are so many stupendous tracks littered throughout. You have the anthemic and U.S. top 10 hit, I Can See for Miles, the endearing yet bizarre Marianne with the shaky hand, the twisted tale of domestic abuse and self-immolation tattoo, which would soon become a barnstorming concert favorite, and the multi-section Rael One, whose concluding passages, and passage actually, would be recycled for their next album, Tommy. Chris? Yeah, uh, the who's, it, it's a strong record. I mean, any any record that's got I Can See for Miles and Miles on it, yeah. is is going to be is going to be a good one uh and yeah you're right i mean the uh, the jingles uh, it, it's a funny album it's yeah. uh you know like as he went along obviously uh townsend got more and more conceptual this is kind of where it starts and uh this is this is him at his funniest 
I think yeah. that's a, you know, Entwistle's got some funny stuff on here. He's got some funny stuff. Obviously, pictures of Lily, uh, you know, which is you know a rubbing it out song. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a, a, you know, mag, mag, a magnificent well, rubbing it out song. Pictures of Lily is not on this album. It was a standalone single. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought for some reason, I, you know what it is? Is it's there's so many of these extended versions that come yeah. out of these albums yeah, it's it, 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 it part of that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, and it's it's part of that so uh that that that's where that little mistake comes from but anyway it was a fertile uh era for the who and it kind of presaged uh the glory the gloriously conceptual stuff that came out later you know the the, the masterpieces tommy and quadrophenia right and so this was kind of a precursor to that right next the kinks with something else by the kinks on this album, the kicks, the kinks <laughs> continue the evolution that they began with the previous years face to face. The heavy riff rock that defined the band just three years earlier seems light years away as a singer songwriter Ray Davies grows into pop music's greatest sociologist, chronicling the everyday lives, longings, regrets, and struggles of working class Britain. He does this while progressively bringing the band's music toward the stylings of traditional English music hall. It's a testament to Davies' gift as a songwriter and the band's nimble playing that keeps things firmly grounded in a rock context that he accomplishes this without any of the trite maudlin sentiment that is often associated with this kind of music. In fact, Davies perfects his mood palette of wistful longing, empathy, socio-political critique, and class conflict to a science and brings the listener in rather than alienating them. David Watts is class rage at its barest. Two Sisters is a heart-wrenching portrayal of sisterly jealousy and the ever-growing divide between traditional feminine roles and liberated femininity. Uh, Afternoon Tea is the kind of jaunty, blissful, romantic reminiscence that Paul McCartney would have died for. And the epic, majestically wistful beauty of Waterloo Sunset, well, where the narrator gazes upon a loving couple sharing a moment that he knows he can never have, is almost too much to bear. Perfect album. Chris? Yeah, it's pretty damn good. But, but basically, the only thing you need to say, it's the one with Waterloo Sunset on it. Yeah. Enough said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really is. Uh, I mean, I, I, I mark it as one of the 500 greatest albums of all time. I'm, yeah. Again, I, I'm, I think it's up there. I mean, I, I, I think I'm a that, shameless Kinks fan. <laughs> yeah. No, there's, there, yeah. I think that the Kinks have at least three albums that belong on that list. Yeah. I got no. four, but that's just me. <laughs> okay. Well, there you <laughs> anyway, go. At least next, three. At least, yeah. Next, Leonard Cohen, Songs of Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen was a celebrated published poet in his home country of Canada before he decided to try his hand at poetic folk music, no doubt inspired by Bob Dylan. The result was, toward the end of 1967, hey, here's an arrival, the release of his debut album. It was immediately praised by critics as an instant classic and had a massive word-of-mouth following that elevated his standing in the music community, undoubtedly due to the number of artists who covered his songs. Several of the now standards that are part of the Cohen canon are here. Suzanne, So Long Marianne, Sisters of Mercy, That's No Way to Say Goodbye. No songwriter sang about getting laid, wanting to get laid, 
and not getting laid enough couched in pretty <laughs> biblical imagery better than Cohen did. Chris. Yeah, which is funny because he did that for 30 years afterwards. <laughs> that like that basically, I mean, so, somewhere deep, deep entrenched in it. Hallelujah is probably about wanting to get laid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Probably is. All these songs are, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, it, it's a dense, it's a very dense to him about getting laid. Uh, yeah, so yeah, so Cohen was a horn dog of, you know, he he was a fine, and he he was a King Kong level horn dog, and uh, so it kind of portrays on that. I'm actually not as familiar with this album as I am with some of his later stuff. Uh, you know, the right. stuff that he did in the '80s and uh and the natural born killers uh, the, right. you know the stuff that made it onto that soundtrack i much prefer the earlier stuff that's just me yeah. yeah well i mean i guess i'm the other way around i mean just you know cohen trying to do folk is not as interesting as him trying to do kind of like avant-garde kind of spooky pop <laughs> uh so i don't know i so i'm i'm i prefer older cohen to younger cohen but then again yeah. i've never given younger cohen much much of a chance because it, it's almost like low rent bob dylan well, it, it, the vocals are better than than later period Cohen. That's for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, but but that's the thing. Well, but then again, Cohen. First, we take Manhattan. Yeah, well, Co well, Cohen. Yeah, Cohen's lyrics kind of like, like his vocals became a shtick after yeah. a while. He lost his voice enough that he just nobody ever got. Well, the only person that's ever gotten more mileage out of having a terrible singing voice than Leonard Cohen is Bob Dylan. The next guy we're going to talk about. Speaking <laughs> of which, Bob Speaking Dylan. Of which, Bob Dylan, John Wesley Harding, the defining solo artist of the 1960s, waited until the last month of the apocal year of 1967, fittingly for this episode, to release an album that would be a signpost for much of the rock world where much of the 1960s and early 1970s musical landscape was heading. Out went the garage rock and heavy blues rock of the previous three albums. Out went the surrealist lyrics and imagery. Out went the cynical attitude. In came allegories and morality tales full of apocalyptic dystopian imagery and biblical references. In came simple acoustic guitar strumming with only the barest of drumming and bass and bass grooves. In came a new singing style for Dylan that saw him use a lower register to offset his patented nasal whine. And it resulted in a batch of songs that would stand among his very finest and be covered by countless other artists and bands for years to come. All along the Watchtower, I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine, Drifters Escape, I Pity the Poor Immigrant. This is his final 1960s masterpiece. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. His final 60s masterpiece. I actually think it's a better record than Blonde on Blonde because I think it's it's you know it's it's obviously it's more concise but it just has a it's there's a meditative quality to this album yeah that i would say that very few of his records approach and i would right. say this might be his most his most meditative record uh in the sense of you know where it's it's got that simplicity to it but it has that depth of feeling and mm. uh you know you're not just talking about love songs but just sort of you know putting uh uh uh, which we we'll call it uh, Vietnam in its in its context sure, and sure. and putting uh, you know sort of you know telling that you know Frankie Lee and Judas Priest you know don't go uh, confusing paradise for that house on down the road sure and you know some some of those morality tales and and some of that so it's just it, there's a there's a humor to the record but there's also an earnestness to the record 
And mm -hmm. it just, it just, it, the way it plays itself out, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful yeah. record. It might be his love. It might actually be hit besides blood on the tracks, his loveliest record. Yeah. Uh, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of John Wesley Harding. And uh, here at the end of the episode, I encourage people to go out and check out this record ASAP. I think, I think it belongs in one. It's one of the top 100 records ever made. I, I would really put it up that, that high. I have it like one in the top 150 in my list, but yeah, yeah. it's definitely yeah anyway go. so we are done with 1967 what a year uh, what a year um 1968 the next installment of the second golden age of rock will come i mean about a month and a month and a half but for the next episode as i said in uh, in our in our promo teaser for the next episode simply put rock's greatest b-sides enough said yeah hey you know uh we we covered uh, as much a side as humanly possible on this episode so yeah. now we're going to flip it over and we're going to do the b sides what's on the b side man you know what's <laughs> you know what's underneath and you know it it's it's very there's been a few instances uh in uh, rock history where where turning over the record uh meant meant and kind of broke artists and so we'll talk about you know the wonder of of leaving your best stuff for the second side on the next episode. Right. And until then, uh, we invite everyone to uh, go join and check out our fabulous curmudgeonly community on Facebook. Uh, I've been uh, a little bit more active than I have been in recent months on there lately, uh, posting some things. Just curious what you think the, uh, the, the best album of the 80s is. Uh, and so, you know, go find my post up there and, and do that. Uh, we talk a lot about a lot of things. Arturo likes to share his year-by-year uh, -year list of the greatest studio albums ever made. Uh, we just did 1999, which for us was nostalgic. Uh, look out for 2000. Can't wait. Yes. Uh, and you can uh, check us out there at facebook.com slash group slash curmudgeon rock. Uh, also, uh, drop us a line uh, and give us any thoughts about anything that we've said on this episode and your own fondness for 1967. Uh, let us know at, uh, uh, at rock at gmail.com. Also, so you know, uh, we're still in the process of finding a new uh, other social media home because we've given up on Twitter because it's too much of a white supremacist uh, shithole for us to stay on brand by being there. So uh, we'll let you... There's, there's Blue Sky, there's Threads, there are others. Yeah, no, there's others. And so we'll we'll, we'll land on one of those. We, we promise sometime in the next two weeks we'll... We'll, we'll, we'll roll out uh, a new presence in, uh, in interactive social media. 